What's up, man? Not a whole lot. Just uh, hanging out on a really beautiful Sunday afternoon. Overcast, rainy. Boggy. Soaky. Yeah, it's stale out there. Well, it's a nice change. It's been a really dry fall so far. Unseasonably so. And hot. Yeah. Well, it's been going back and forth. We had that one week where it was in the 20s all week. And then now it'll start in about the low 60s and end in like the mid 70s. I don't know it was like 80 uh, a couple days ago. Mm. Miserable. Yeah. Oh. So I've got a bone to pick with first the EPA. Okay. And second Diesel Boys. Diesel Boys? Is that a YouTube channel? No. It's just a just the derogatory term I use like... to describe people who drive diesel trucks. <laughs> All right, man. Let me hear about it. Okay, first, they're not directly related, but they are related. And EPA, Environmental Protection Agency? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One, my El Camino pisses me off because the 70s emissions limited engines are so down on power that it's upsetting. And I'm trying to figure out the best way to get some power back. That got me... No. Well, I was gonna say I remember your uh, you mentioning your dad saying something about that when you had the Challenger still about how all the cars in the seventies got robbed of their power because of emissions. Yeah, he's he lived through that and he hated it. Everybody hated it. I hate it. There's like the golden era of muscle cars from like sixty five, sixty six into seventy three, and then after that seventy three to through the nineties. It's really low on power. They start to pick up a little bit in the 90s. You see a little bit in the 2000s. Ford's still doing a pretty good job with like the SVT Cobras, but I really attribute the birth of modern muscle to Dodge. I don't think that's a controversial opinion, but you know, we've really we're in the waning era of that. Mm-hmm. This this modern resurgence of muscle, but not the point. The muscle cars of the 70s getting kind of neutered, was that a response to like the energy crisis back then? Emissions and the energy crisis uh, going, we need things to be more fuel efficient. Uh, we also need things to, one, one, because the EPA was saying, you've got to make things more fuel efficient. And two, because gas had gotten so expensive. Yeah, like 50 cents a gallon. <laughs> yeah. Of course, adjusted for inflation. Uh, you know, and but they were also running out. Yeah. So, all that aside... Because we hadn't tapped Alaska yet for oil, I don't think, in the 70s. Does that that sound right? I don't know. But back to how this involves diesel guys. When I had the Mustang, you know, having to get it tuned and whatnot, and while I was doing all that, the EPA started cracking down on tuners. And the main target is diesel boys. (laughs) All these guys getting their diesels, getting them tuned so they're way too rich, they're dumping way too too much fuel so they can roll coal. It's like, guys, can we not have a little more tack to this? How about we be a little lower profile, we can enjoy our stuff, and you ain't got to ruin it for everybody. Oh, so they're like giving away the game by being too flashy, too yee-yee. I mean, yeah, you, you know what draws attention? Trucks that roll giant clouds of black smoke. People look at that. It's like if, if a Mustang goes a little too fast, people aren't really going to understand why it goes faster. They're really not going to notice it goes much faster than a, an actual, just a regular Mustang that's stock. But when you've got a truck, and all of a sudden, it has this monstrous cloud of black smoke, people know, hey, it's not supposed to do that that draws attention it's like when you see your weed guy like on his uh, snapchat story like flexing and waving around guns it's like well i guess i'm gonna have to find a new guy soon yeah you know i'm sure that that's probably true my weed guy would never do that i I don't have a weed guy so i I try to stay clear of that but the fact of the matter is if we could just be cool we could have more fun with cars well you don't drive a diesel like that to be subtle i guess 
you can drive a diesel like that to be subtle and i'm sure that if anybody ever listens to this it's probably not going to be a diesel boy but rolling coal diesel boys sound off in the comments diesel boys that's inefficient if you had your shit tuned right it wouldn't roll so much coal all that is just unburnt fuel you're dumb and i hate you for it (laughs) uh so whenever you like have to like get your vehicle tested for emissions, is that just in like major metropolitan areas? Because I've never had to do anything like that. No, I, it's not. Or is it no, a state by state thing? It's a municipality by municipality thing. Oh, okay. Um, you know, Rutherford County had testing. Mm. Davidson had it. Yeah, I guess when I lived in Rutherford, I never had to deal with it, but I was still registered. I guess as a. So yeah, I mean, and then recent. I think it was like a year or so ago. I've heard my Nashville pl- uh, friends complain about it, so I guess Davidson County's like big on it. There was some change in some of the rules, and you don't have. There's a lot of places no longer have emissions testing. Uh, I think maybe Shelby County still has it, so Memphis, and then I don't remember if Davidson still has it or not. But it's really just a, a revenue source. Uh, it's kind of a poor tax, but. Oh, because they don't demand that you actually do anything about it. It's just an extra tax on you if your oh, vehicle's not efficient. No, they, they do demand you do something about it. Because oh. if you can't pass emissions, you can't get your vehicle registered. So if you can't afford to fix maintenance issues, your vehicle's not going to get registered because it can't pass emissions. Then how are you going to go to work? So you're either going to have to lose your job or stop driving or, or keep driving. And then when you keep driving, you're going to get pulled over for driving without a, a registration mm-hmm. so then you're going to get fines and costs associated with that it's a whole big racket it it really only affects people who can't afford to fix their vehicle so it's just a means to feed people into the like the penal system that's already kind of predatory and you know i don't know if that's the goal but that's the effect okay Uh, and that's a good segue. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's not. <laughs> I was just about to introduce, and then I like I just dropped off. I just felt. You know what? I don't have those words right now. Let me do it again. Welcome back to the Snob in the Scent presents. Uh, I'm your host Matt, and I'm your your host Michael. <laughs> and I stutter because I don't remember my name. Uh, my, my name's Michael. Take two. <laughs> I'm a, I'm also your host. Take three. I'm your host Michael. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about 2001's Enemy at the Gates and 1985's Come and See. But before we get into that, uh, Michael, what you been watching this week, bud? I didn't watch too awful much. Um, I think we finished The Midnight Club on Netflix. That was a pretty good show. Did you mention that last week? I don't know if I mentioned it. Yeah, I think I mentioned it to you. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and that's pretty good. Uh, I think maybe there's a sequel to it at some point, but we'll just have to see. Devil in Ohio, that was like the series you were telling me about last week, I think, or something like that. The yeah, that cult was, show. That, that was a probably at the last 
recording. Okay. But yeah, that that's another pretty good one on Netflix. All right. So what's that show about you were just talking about? Uh, it's about a bunch of people with terminal illnesses. Uh, I think they're all between like 18 and their early 20s. Mm-hmm. They go to this hospice house to learn how to be an adult while also dying. Um, it's about autonomy, getting away from your parents, whatever. There's a cult tied up into it uh, with magical remedies, uh, sacrificing people to Greek goddesses. It's like this whole big thing. It's like a will they, won't they of will it, does it work, does it not work, who's who. Um, all kind those of like vortices of power. Toting that line between uh, actual supernatural occurrence and mental illness. Uh, yeah, there's a little bit of that in it. Um, part of it is kind of the power of hope, the the dangers of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, if this is the show I remember you telling me about off mic, is this the one where it's sort of a anthology type thing where the main characters are telling other stories? Yeah, they're telling their own stories. They have this, it's called the Midnight Club because they show up in the library at midnight. They tell stories. Um, usually they're putting themselves and their illnesses center stage by telling like a, a parable of the main characters dealing with the same issues this person dealt with. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a more grown-up version of Are You Afraid of the Dark? And I think the group in Are You Afraid of the Dark, I think they're called like the Midnight Society or something. Or the Campfire Society. This, that might be it. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not familiar with Are You Afraid of the Dark. Oh, that was a classic growing up. That one actually kind of riled me a bit. It was like right up there with Tales from the Crypt, even though one was clearly for children and one was clearly for adults. <laughs> yeah, I I just never never paid a whole lot of attention to it, mm-hmm. I'm being honest with you. Anything else that catch your eye this week other than that show? I'm trying to think. Uh, watch some Bob's Burgers. Um, I, I think I'm about tapped i think we were playing minecraft a little bit so maybe not watching too much tv well speaking of adult animation i was at a friend's house last weekend and the whole squad decided to put on a like recent episode of family guy and it was excruciating they seemed to enjoy it and they were even like kind of conjoling me through i was like oh come on matt that was funny and i can't think of a single thing that would be more unfunny than what we watched and that's why you're the snob i guess so man but i if I showed you this episode, there's no way you would enjoy it. There's I, no way. I wouldn't be so sure. Uh, I mean, I remember thinking on the ride, I was like, man, last time I hung out with these guys, we ended up listening to a bunch of corn. I hope that doesn't happen again. <laughs> and God damn it, I will take all the corn songs ever watching New Family Guy. I haven't seen Family Guy in a while. I don't know what they're doing on the new shows. Not much, man. But I think I would rather watch any Family Guy over listening to corn. <laughs> Uh, other than that, I've mostly just been keeping up with the NBA this past two weeks. The NBA season's up and going, following my Grizzlies. Uh, there's been a handful of disappointments with that. Yeah, I was going to say that it's probably my fault for watching the Grizzlies because that seems to be when they lose. It does I, seem to be the case. But then I didn't watch it, and they lost again to the Jazz, so I really don't feel like it's my fault anymore. I mean, it, it could be a little bit your fault, but... <laughs> no, I think they just kind of suck right now. Now, the Jazz are unusually good this year, considering they traded away all their talent in the postseason to kind of go into rebuild mode. It really makes no sense how they're working out this well, but they're one of the top teams in the West. But the Grizzlies have the same record as them, so so far so good, but it could be a lot better. Well, the games I've watched the Grizzlies play have been very disappointing. Yeah, well, quit fucking watching, dude. You're ruining it for me. I did. They still lost. Look, I'm trying to be level-headed about it because it's no-cap November, and this is the one subject I'm bound to cap about, but no. We're going to stay steady here. 
you know, Jaron Jackson Jr. will be back after Christmas, hopefully, and things will be fine. Everything's going to be good. Question, serious question. Why can't Tennessee have a single good team? Uh, It comes in waves. Like, I think, what was it, like three years ago, the Titans were really good when Derrick Henry was first, like, kind of popping off. I don't know. I don't keep up with sports. I'm just an antagonist. Yes. A contrarian, except I do like the NBA. I will say, I think you need to give a few more details than just dogs. Who, who are you talking about, Michael? I'm talking about the Georgia Bulldogs. Oh, when you meet the Georgia Bulldogs, you gonna feel a bulldog bite. Could you do that again? Oh, when you meet the Georgia Bulldogs, you gonna feel a bulldog bite. Just one more time, I promise this is the last time. Oh, when you meet the Georgia Bulldogs, you gonna feel a bulldog bite. Now that that's over with. R.I.P. Rackham Willie. Shouts out to a real one. Gone no, but not forgotten. They trounced the Vols, and that's all I could hope for. I saw about half of that game while I was at my parents' house doing laundry. I was editing last week's episode, so I was only kind of half watching. And I just, out of the corner of my eyes, just saw how bad of a like, big dick beatdown they were getting from the Bulldogs. It was, uh, I didn't watch it at all. I just kind of kept up with the score to make sure they were, the dogs were winning. <laughs> it's not that they win, it's that the Vols lose. That's true. That's usually my position. Uh, other than basketball and that god-awful episode of Family Guy, uh, last night, no, not last night, Friday night, I watched uh, Barbarian on HBO Max. Oh, yeah. Have you heard about it? I've heard good things. I haven't seen it. I really liked it. Uh, as you may or may not have heard, it's written and directed by Zach Kreger from Whitest Kids You Know, which I know is foundational for both you and me in high school. Yeah, I've... I've heard good things. I think I think my parents may have watched it at the theater or something, mm-hmm. and they hated it, which is usually a good sign for me. Oh, well, there you go. I, I can't give a whole lot about it away because it is very weird and unique. Like, to tell... Like Tusk. Yeah. Oh, don't fucking... Are you saying that because you know Justin Long's in it? Uh, No, I'd forgotten that Justin Long was in it. Tusk is just a weird and unique movie that's very good. This movie kind of made me forgive Justin Long for being involved with Tusk. <laughs> He does play pretty much the same character that he plays in Tusk. I think that's just Justin Long. Maybe. Anything else that you wanted to get into before you start today? No, I don't I don't think a whole lot uh, else happened to me this week. Usually we got a whole lot more to prattle about in the opening part, but hey, there, there's nothing wrong with doing an episode that's sub two hours. I mean, I do come from a school of thought that any podcast should last three hours oh that's light work if you're coming from the rogan school of thought which i'm assuming is what you're referencing um you know last podcast on the left gets up there pretty good for on occasion do they really uh, usually when i listen to them it's like broken up into parts to keep it from doing that they'll have broken up parts but they'll be like an hour 20 hour and 30 minutes a piece so i mean it's still pretty lengthy that's still sub two hours though yeah but you put all the parts together <laughs> They're I'll telling tell you, one, they're telling one story over the course of you know four or five hours. Are you a Dan Carlin guy? Do you like hardcore history? Because those are some long podcasts. I've listened to a little bit of that. Uh, it, they are long and they're dense. Mm-hmm. It always seems like there's only like a handful of episodes available that are just free to the public. Of course, it's still like probably 30 hours of material but i'm not sure how his subscription service works because it's not patreon based i guess you have to go through his website i don't know i do know he has a subscription service Uh, i've never bothered with it but i'm sure i'm missing out on a lot of good stuff all right so uh do you want to start with enemy at the gates or come and see i'll let you choose this week oh man um i feel like we should start on a movie i didn't like and then go to a movie that's depressing oh well 
I think we're going to start with Enemy at the Gates then. That's correct. <laughs> Gates from 2001 was written, directed, and produced by Jean-Jacques Anon. Uh, it was primarily a British film, the way it was produced, uh, with a French director, because uh, most of the cast are British, with the exception of Ed Harris and Ron Perlman, but Ron Perlman's early film career was very European. I think he's fluent in like three or four languages. It wasn't until about maybe midway through his career where he got recognition in America. Uh, it's based on the 1970 book, or 1973 book, Enemy at the Gates, The Battle for Stalingrad by William Craig. Uh, this is the second collaboration between uh, director Jean-Jacques Anon and Alain Godard. Their first collaboration was Quest for Fire, which was also starring Ron Perlman. I've never seen that, but I've heard it referenced in pop culture all throughout growing up. Growing up, I know it's like a prehistoric caveman type fantasy deal. I'm not familiar. Uh, the cast includes Jude Law as the lead as uh, Vasily Zatsev. I'm going to fuck up these Slavic names way worse than I fucked up the Korean names last week. Korean and Chinese names are actually fairly simple because it's like three four letter words in sequence these it's like 14 letter long and you don't know where the syllable begins or ends it really can't be worse than the uh, western slant they put on enemy at the gates as far as oh we'll get to that eastern culture we will get to that okay uh, jude law stars as vasily zatsev joseph fines the brother of ray fines uh, stars as Commissar Donilov, who was also a real guy who gets done real fucking dirty in this movie. Uh, Rachel Weiss plays Tanya Chernova. Uh, the only thing I really recognize her from is the first Brendan Fraser mummy movie. Do you know her from anything else? Because she got like replaced as soon as they did the second one. See, I racked my brain trying to figure out what she was from. I thought she was okay in this film, but I remember growing up, the first mummy film, she is insufferably British. It is so palpably annoying how British she is. That's like her character trait is, I'm insufferable. I'm annoyingly British. And someone who's not annoyingly British, but unfortunately was stuck in this film, is Bob Hoskins, who plays uh, Nikola Khrushchev. We also have Ed Harris playing uh, Erwin Koenig, the Nazi sniper, who's kind of the counter to uh, Jude Law's Vasily Zatsev. Ron Perlman plays uh, Zatsev Snyder Kulikov. And uh, we have a young... 12-year-old actor named Gabriel Thompson, who plays Sasha Filipov. Uh, the, bu- the budget for this film was $68 million, which is a fucking lot. And the box office was $97 million. Not a lot. $68 million. 
I don't know what it paid for. I really a bunch don't. of the act, the names, the people involved in it. Maybe it has to have been mostly casting because I don't really see what they would have splurged on. The stunts are. I mean, I guess just building the broken city of Stalingrad was expensive. Just having the dilapidated structures. And they did like a decent job of recreating a Pavlov's house, which was a famous structure in the Battle of Stalingrad. But I guess saying you did a good job building half of a building isn't the biggest compliment. Well, I don't think the money was spent on like script writing. No. It had, like you said, it had to have mostly been actor salary because it is a star-studded cast. By all means, like this movie should be much better than it is, but I'm thankful that it's not better. I, I mean, I had to watch it. I wish it had been better. Well, at the risk of sounding like you, the fact that it's semi-competently made is a very down, very, very negative strike against it because of what the message behind it is and the total disrespect for the subject matter. Well, for me, it starts on a bad foot with the faux Cyrillic writing at the beginning. Yeah. You watch and you're like, oh, I I know what's going to happen here. This is going to be a, hey, we found a cool guy in the Soviet Union. But let's make him not Soviet. (laughs) Yeah. And let's also just like have everybody kind of say cliche things that sound like we're shitting on the Soviet Union. Let's undermine everything that this really cool guy was actually proud of in his life. There's no deeper message to this movie. It is just a story about a guy shooting Nazis. That's it. Bare bones, end of the day, and a shitty love story. Well, I wish it was only that because it's on its nose. It's like very explicitly anti-communist. And it's Uh, like, why even bother telling the story if you're going to take that bent to it? I guess by getting a French director, they thought they were going to be more fair being a Central European, but no, it's still very much a Western, uh, a Western interpretation of the Battle of Stalingrad, which really doesn't need a Western perspective. Well, and to, to be clear, when I, I say it, it's just a movie about a guy shooting people, I mean that it was stripped of any significance as yeah. a cultural uh, occurrence. It is just uh, the West going, hey, let's make a movie about something that happened. Um, we're going to make it as ahistorical as possible. Mm-hmm. We're going to Westwash it. And I like that term. Well, it's weird to say whitewash when everybody involved is <laughs> Well, is if you European. listen to the language of that film, they kind of make the distinction that Slavs are not white Europeans. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think you're wrong in that. Um, but at the end of the day... All you have is an anti-communist war movie that has no greater criticism on war. It's just criticism of, well, the Soviet Union sucks. Here's a guy. He shot Nazis. That's all we're going to talk about. Yeah, I mean, if you want a historic uh, hero worship, it's much more in line with, like, Clint Eastwood's American Sniper. This is pretty much, you know, Slavic Chris Kyle is how this movie is presented. Or if you want to present to more, like, a historical hero worship it's like any movie that mel gibson's directed yeah i mean you you have a guy who literally doesn't care about well the character seems to care about people that die around him but then it doesn't change his character development in any way whatsoever no like it's just it's completely superficial yeah and the biggest like sign of disrespect is like could you imagine if say the western equivalent of this film like say a uh, saving private ryan which came out about two or three years prior to this could you imagine if tom hanks's character in saving private ryan just every five minutes or so was like oh man what are we even fucking doing here i don't know any jews like <laughs> that's the degree to how disrespectful this is to the soviet cause and how much they contributed to ending world war Two. yeah I- 
you can tell from the very beginning. I will give it credit for this. Starting the movie with a sick-ass armored train is awesome. I love armored trains. Armored trains are cool, but they make a big show of them putting a padlock exactly. on the train door. And it's like, oh, they're trying to make a visual metaphor for how, you know, uh, people were transported to concentration camps in the Holocaust. It's like, well, they're going to a battle that they volunteered for to defend their homeland. They're not. Also, if you've been on any train ever, you're locked in. There's no such thing as a moving train that's unlocked. I, I don't. That wasn't my read of that. See the of that symbolism putting the lock on it when they put the big padlock on and they're crammed in and they're kind of looking yeah, through the bars. My read on that is a, a slam on Russian mass mobilization. Mm-hmm. The and then saying these people aren't really heroes; they're only going to the front lines because they're being forced to. Yes. they're not volunteers in war; they are being forced to die. And then that's that's even greater exemplified. When you get to the scene where they're storming the city. Yeah, so uh, the film opens uh, with the train ride that takes them to the beachhead where they're going to cross the Volga River to yeah. Stalingrad from the eastern side. Because the uh, Germans have occupied the western side. And during that, you see many ships get cut down and stuff. But the uh, uh, in that scene, you see something that's not just ahistorical, something that's not just Western propaganda. It's just nonsensical, where when the uh, the Soviets charge, they have them partially armed. Every other man has a rifle, every other man has a magazine, I, I, and you have to wait till someone dies to get another one. And that, there were moments in the Soviet campaign where they were, you know, undersupplied, but never to that degree, and especially not in the Battle of Stalingrad. You know, I, I, I think I'm, I don't know if that, that, part of it is entirely a historic it um, is I, I looked into it the, it the soviet union had major supply chain issues yeah from mass mobilization and a massive front but it was never to the degree that it was portrayed there where they would just hand you a magazine and no rifle or a rifle with no ammunition well they didn't i don't think they hand in that I, to be fair to enemy at the gates I don't think they handed really anybody. <laughs> I don't think they handed anybody a rifle with no ammunition. They just handed people ammunition and a rifle to pick up the rifle in front of them when the person they were following died. So everybody, I think anybody who had a rifle had ammo. Yeah, and uh, they, they did like, but you you had said that they gave them rifles with no ammunition. Yeah, that's what they... happens in the opening scene. But in reality, they were armed on the boats on the way over. Well, no, but they they still got anybody who had a rifle got ammunition in the opening scene. Yeah, they, no. gave, they gave them, no, they gave them rifles with ammo. Every they other gave, man got a rifle, every other man got a magazine, and you had to well, wait for someone to die to get both. No, you're you're, you're mischaracterizing that, because what, what had happened was, they, you're right, they give every other person a rifle, but that rifle had ammunition. He was supposed to charge and shoot, and then when he died, they didn't have rifles for the second guy, so they said, all right, well, once he dies, you pick up his rifle, and then you've got ammunition, so then you can load whatever he shot out like you'll you'll have a resupply and you'll start shooting the front line didn't have no ammunition well i thought that was the implication because this is another example i think of the film being heavy-handed with how the soviets had sort of a meat grinder type strategy when it came to world war ii and to a degree they did but it's very overstated here in a way that was a historical and not only that behind uh the charging soviets you had their commanding officers operating a machine gun to shoot deserters, just deserters, which again, a historical and nonsensical. Why would you do that? I agree with that. That's where I was getting. I mean, the major issue there is, I mean, yeah, you, you can mock the 
lack of supplies that the Russian military had. The, I mean, the the Nazis also had supply chain issues. You're fighting a war um, in a harsh environment. Supply chain issues happen. The bigger thing here is the the shooting of deserters. One, sure, there are going to be times, I, I assume, when you're yeah. in a military engagement where you're going to send troops in in almost a meat grinder fashion mm-hmm. because you're just trying to advance. Yeah. I mean, I think that's pretty much World War One. And also, at this and, point, the Red Army didn't really have infrastructure like the rest of the militaries they were going up against. It was a lot of peasantry that was being armed with hunting rifles. Yeah, I mean, there, which is a, another interesting thing that you see um, some like PPSHs early on, which would be a very uncommon gun for somebody to have in the Russian military because they're expensive and rare and that late in the game. Probably not in production, but that's not the point. Were those the like bolt action rifles they were handing out yeah, in the, the beginning? The PPSH is the submachine gun. Oh, okay. That looks like it has an oil rig on the over the barrel. The shroud is like a, oh, like a okay. cheese grater kind of thing. Um, I've always thought they look like oil rigs. Yeah. Um, but when they they run into gunfire just to get slaughtered, and then they're like, okay, we're not making any progress or retreat, and they just the Soviet command just sets up their machine gun and starts mowing them down. Yeah, yeah, that's so ahistoric just for the purpose of saying the Soviets don't care about people at all. They're just monsters. Yeah, and that's a common thing we see in like Western chauvinism is that Eastern philosophy doesn't put a value on life when it's quite the opposite compared to Western Sovietism because it values the community over the individual. And we're seeing like a gross misrepresentation of that. But as I was saying earlier, it's not only ahistorical, it's nonsensical. No military, no matter how cruel, would do that because you're just wasting supplies and reducing your ranks i'm not gonna say no i wouldn't i wouldn't say no one would do that um i'm sure there have been military commanders that have shot deserters and they're not really deserting they're just retreating back from gunfire but and uh but in that situation that you're pinned between your own forces shooting at you and the enemy forces shooting at you that situation probably not too common it would have to be super rare I'm, I imagine it's happened before, but... And some of the reading I did on this scene that uh, was critical of it, uh, they said what they're probably trying to reference here in a very ham-fisted ma- uh, fashion is Stalin's no-steps-back uh, order, which was, you know, about uh, curtailing panic mongers and deserters, but you would only be executed if your desertion directly led to the death of your comrades or if you were deemed a panic monger. Most prisoners that, you know, got in trouble for desertion or retreating whenever they weren't supposed to, they typically got sent into a a penal unit, which would in turn be forced to do more dangerous activities as punishment, but they would still use them as manpower and as a resource. It would make no sense to mass execute people on the scale that they were doing in this battle yeah i mean that's ammunition that could have been used against the yeah put that machine gun guy in the front (laughs) it could have been used against the nazis that were 300 100 yards away 150 yards away across this courtyard Mm -hmm. and you're telling me that you're going to waste it on your own troops because they're they've been slaughtered at least take it and chew up some of those vehicles with it yeah it's it's completely nonsensical and the whole purpose of that scene is to say the soviets don't know how to fight wars and they kill their own troops, unlike the West, which would never kill any of its own troops or send people into yeah. shitty situations. And there is a lot of rhetoric like that with media pertaining to Vietnam, that the Vietnamese don't value life in the way that we Americans do. 
Unlike all the people we sent to Vietnam and turned into a meat grinder. Yeah, uh, or else you go to prison. And then guy gave them all cancer yeah. with, <laughs> with Agent Orange and then didn't provide any resources for them when they got back. Only the Soviets would do something like that. Uh, in this scene, we are introduced to Commissar Danilov, who I mentioned gets done super dirty. Uh, he rushes into the scene driving, is it a Volkswagen bug that he flips? Yeah. Yeah. And there he meets uh, Jude Law's character where they're pinned down in a statue and he realizes Jude Law's uh, extreme marksmanship. Like I said, this is the Soviet equivalent of Clint Eastwood's American Sniper. So he does like very, I'm not really sure where I'm heading with this. I guess I'm just trying to move the synopsis forward. But we really don't need to do the synopsis of this film because it's fucking stupid. I, I would. Do we I really need the sequence I, of events here if it's this ahistorical? I, I think the sequence of events is still fine. We can hit the high notes of it. I mean, you you do get a really cool debut of Vasily as an adult Uh huh. Um, when he's in the fountain. And he just, like, picks off all of those Nazi officers during the explosions. Yeah, he kills about six of them in, like, maybe 20 seconds because he times his shots with, like, the mortar explosions so they don't notice. It's it's a really cool scene, and he never gets another redeeming scene like that. <laughs> no. It's like he starts out strong, and then it's... He's just kind of you. You see that he's racking up kills through the new the the newspaper that's being printed. Um, but then you kind of jump around. You don't really have a good sense of what's going on because then all yeah. of a sudden you're in a sniper battle because his success has drawn the attention of the Nazi sniper instructor. Yeah, who's sent there for the sole purpose of hunting Vasily. Ed Harris's character, Erwin Koenig. And, you know, then they have some run-ins, and it's kind of a wash. Uh, Vasily's like, man, I'm outmatched. So then they send in Ron Perlman, mm-hmm. who uh, dies really quick. Yeah, and he's also the biggest mouthpiece for anti-communist propaganda because his character, who is based on a real guy who was not anti-communist, he was all about the cause, claims that uh, he was sent to Germany to study, and then once the war broke out, they assumed he was a traitor and knocked all of his teeth out. Yeah, they, the whole purpose of all of his dialogue was to say, I, I mean, I'm faithful to my country, but my country treats me like crap. Mm-hmm. I'm still here, though, because that's what it means to be a good communist. Like, bro, shut the fuck up. <laughs> and so they don't really give his character any utility. Uh, they waste it just to show that, you know, he's just a, a propagandist piece. And then he dies really quickly. Yeah. And in the meantime, they've sacrificed this other guy. I don't even know his name. The third guy that tags along with them when they're in the factories. He yes. gets captured. They shoot him in the head. There's no remorse about it. Uh, they There's a lack of emotion. The whole point, I think, of all this is to show that the Soviets lack emotion. Mm-hmm. Unlike the West, which is super in touch with its emotion. Oh, yeah. Definitely no repressed rage there. You know, And so that ends up being the main theme is just this back and forth between the Nazis and the Soviets in a sniper battle. Then Jude Law shoehorns in this really weird love story with uh, uh, Rachel Wise's character. So about that, that is the fact that it's a love triangle with Danilov is fictionalized, but uh, Rachel Weiss is portraying an actual Soviet female sniper that was romantically involved with Vasily Zatsev. Yeah, and that may be the case, but it's shoehorned into this movie for the sake of a romantic relationship in a movie. 
I think it has a place in the movie, just the fact that it's made a love triangle where uh, Commissar Danilov has an incel uh, crisis of faith towards the end and kills himself. That's the part that fucking drags it. No, I, the whole thing is shoehorned. There's, It's fine that they it's have It's definitely a, a westernized like love story, so there's definitely tacky, corny bits of it. They, I think that's what you... They didn't do it in a way that really lends to the story. It wasn't executed well. It's just, yeah. hey... Here's a love story that's happening at the same time. There's this love triangle. <clears throat> oh, by the way, Dunlov is going to forsake all that he stands for and start smearing Vasily just because he feels slighted. Yeah. Um, but then there's the weird Even sex in- scene that happens that's super forced and contrived. Yeah, that was really gross. weird because they're doing it in like the bunk amongst their like wounded comrades. And it's like. Dude, are you really busting right now? And My body I, is like 50% bandages right now. And you're just going to nut next to me? I don't even have a problem. Like, I don't have a problem with them doing it. I mean, if they're going to do it somewhere, that, I mean, that, makes just, somewhere. that makes just as much. The point is that the scene is so awkwardly shot. Yeah. It's like they. They're trying to she, stealth fuck. She looks like she's in pain. She looks like she's not enjoying it. He's, like, covering her mouth in a weird way. Yeah. Well, they're, they're trying to be discreet, but yeah, it's it still very just, like, awkward. It comes across as almost non-consensual. It's really poorly shot. Maybe that's just point. how, like, two snipers fuck, though. Maybe it is. <laughs> I mean, ha- I don't know. They're just addicted to the stealth. But it's just, the scene is really poorly shot, and it made me uncomfortable because it just, it didn't seem like they cared about each other. This seemed like a weird forced sex scene. Mm-hmm. Forced comma sex scene. Yeah, I do feel like the relationship was handled like clumsily and cornily in this movie. But I do think in his story, it is worth noting. Uh, some inaccuracies about Vasily himself that I feel like the movie is like just like blatantly shitty about is uh, there's implications that, you know, it shows that he can read and write, but he struggles with it. When in reality, the Vasily, whenever he joined the war effort, was studying to be an accountant. He had a basic education. He could read and write well. Yeah, but Soviets are stupid. Yeah, that seems to be the ex- uh, the implication. Except for Danilov, who's the smart Soviet because he inherits a Western incel values. Uh, except, thus making him smarter. Um, Rachel Weiss's character also went to school. She's very smart. Oh, uh, an inaccuracy about her character is that uh, they have her as a uh, resident of Stalingrad that's defending her home. In reality, uh, she was a Russian-American who went to Belarus to save her grandparents, but was too late. They had already been killed by the Nazis, so she joined the Red Army and became part of uh, Vatsili's sniper school, and they became romantically involved. Uh Another thing, it's weird that they open the movie with this, but it shows Vasily as a 12-year-old boy hunting a wolf, which is from his memoirs, but they paint it as like a traumatic scene where his grandpa was mean to him and made him kill the wolf when he didn't want to. It's like, no, that was something he was very proud of. His family were rural mountain people. Hunting game was a part of their life. I don't know. My take on that scene was they they show the wolf tearing the horse apart. Yeah, because he was too hesitant, which... Yeah, that was like a point of shame for him of, like, I'm not good enough to save this horse. I'm not good enough to save this kid, Sasha, which we haven't talked about. But when I'm not good enough to save him, I'm not good enough to save Rachel. I'm not good enough to save anybody. Rachel! Which is a main point of his story is, I'm not good enough. You've built me up to be a propagandist monument, and I, I just can't do that. I'm not that good of a person. Yeah, the film keeps getting cold feet about that subject is whether or not his heroism is effective or not because whenever it's you know 
good for the movie whenever it's like, fuck yeah, action times. Like, oh yeah, Vasily's heroism. It is inspiring the entire Soviet Union. And then towards the end, whenever it becomes, you know, inconvenient and they got to find a third act, you know, uh, contrivance just to add some interest to it other than the sniper duel. It's like, oh no, actually communism doesn't work because some guys don't get enough pussy. Yeah, I, I think you're kind of where that ends up going is for the plot point, he's hugely, hugely effective in moralizing this, the the Red Army. At the same time, they're like, well, we can't let him be too big because if he's too big, people might not have negative thoughts about the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. We can't propagandize the Soviet Union in a way that helps them. So let's dial it back whenever we need to. Yeah, and... uh Another factor about uh, Vasily is that it kind of implies that he wasn't maybe on the up and up when he joined the fight, but he had already been in the military since 1930, the real life Vasily, and he was a naval financial officer whenever the invasion of the Soviet Union happened, and he volunteered to go to the front line and fight. So that's another thing that kind of the implication with that train scene at the beginning being padlocked in and you know, viewing his face through the bars. You know, it's not something that's stated, but the implication is that he was forced to be here. He was conscripted. When it couldn't be further from the truth, he was a very patriotic man. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of Western views of of the Soviet Union and Russia as cowardly, forced to fight, when in fact, a lot of the people involved sincerely held their beliefs just as much as anyone else in any other country believed what they believed. Yeah, if you're going to make a film about Stalingrad, these people rightfully deserve to be, you know, lionized to a degree for defending their home because you would do that with any narrative where people are defending their home from a foreign invader. Especially one of the greatest forces to ever exist that had wiped Europe off the map and was rolling into the Soviet Union. You know those people we have like a general consensus about them being god-awful and shitty? Yeah, those people did it. Oh, wait a minute. You're actually being sympathetic to the Nazis in this movie. Oh, I see what we're watching now. Did you feel that, that there were a couple of moments where they were sympathetic to Ed Harris's character? Uh, I think the only time I really picked up on that is when he they find Vasily's wallet from that uh, grave robber. Yeah. Um, and they're like, all right, Vasily's dead. You need to leave now. You were useless. You didn't do any good. Get out of here because you're mm-hmm. nothing. And it's like, why? Why is this scene happening? Yeah, why do I give a shit about Ed Harris's character? It's like, I don't need to care that they've, they're have they being mean to him yeah. for some reason. And there's another scene uh, pertaining to him being forced out of the battle where they ask him to return some of his medals. And he hands over his son, uh, one medal that he says, well, this belonged to my son. He died in the first week of Stalingrad. It's like, well, who gives a fuck? Fuck your fucking kraut, son. I don't give I a don't- shit. I don't. I didn't think he said. So. One, they take his dog tags so that if he gets killed, yeah, they don't. Nobody finds his dog tags. Two, I thought he said this is just a commander that I that I found. I thought he said it was his son. I did not remember it being his son. If I did, I totally missed it. It's the, my understanding was that he found. He's like, I found this. He wears metal. the Iron yeah. Cross medal that's his, I believe, and the one that's the swastika is his son's. I don't remember him ever mentioning having a son. Yeah. What I thought he said was, this belonged to a commander that fell in the first days of of the invasion, and I never understood why he had it. Yeah. I don't know what was significant about it. Maybe if it was his son's, that makes sense, but also I don't know why he would voluntarily give it back to them. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I think they just asked for his dog tag. Yeah, this film is not even exaggerating. It's way more sympathetic to the fascists than the communists, and it's a movie about Stalingrad. Like, who signed off on this fucking screenplay? Well, and I don't know. I don't I don't necessarily think the movie is sympathetic to the Nazis. 
I think the movie is anti-communist and neutral to the Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Nazi ambivalence. And like the movie is the Nazis are there. They're just fighting a war. Um, and the communists are also just fighting a war, but the communists are bad. Mm-hmm. And they don't really critique Nazism. No, not at all. It's just kind of like, not. it's just a thing. It exists. It is what it is. You know, Get over it. If, like, the communism slander, if it had only been, you know, just like Bob Hoskins' portrayal as Khrushchev as kind of a uptight asshole, I could live with that because that's probably how he was. But the links that they go to to undermine every bit of uh, communist ideology, it's... They have to literally break their neck to make it fit the narrative. Well, and what's interesting is they could have taken this this movie, they could have crapped on the Nazis, crapped on the communists, and done them both. It's interesting they chose to only do one. And the fact of the matter is, there's plenty of criticisms of the ideological approach of Nazis and communists in the sense of, I forget who says it, but there's a writer that says the main difference between a Nazi and a communist was which propagandists got to them first. Because there's just like certain people who are blank slates ready to be indoctrinated and the diehard supporters are either going to, if you if you get Nazi propaganda first, that's what you're going to be. If you're going to get communist propaganda first, that's what you're going to be. That could easily be turned into if you get capitalist propaganda first, mm-hmm. that's what you're going to be. Point is, this movie didn't do that at all. They just go, ah, Nazis are Nazis. You know, it sucks. The communists suck. They're they're monsters. It's like, yeah, our hero, he's technically a Soviet, but they're being re- they're being really exploitive of him, and you should actually kind of not trust them either. So well, it's really like he's a nation to himself, Vasily. Well, he's one of the good ones. Him and his girl boss, girlfriend, are a nation unto themselves. You know, they're, you, know you might have a, a batch of bad apples, but eventually there's going to be a good one. Another scene that sticks out to me is uh, one of the scenes where Bob Hoskins, as Khrushchev, is saying, we must defend Stalingrad because it has Stalin's name in it. After, at the very beginning of the film, they have the graphic explaining why defending Stalingrad is so important because it's an important strategic choke point. Well, the other part of that scene is he's like, I don't know how we moralize these people. I anybody guess we just have, keep shooting anybody them. Anybody have any ideas? And one guy's like, um, what if we uh, kill deserters and shoot people when they run away? Why don't and we put their like, families in prison? And he's like, oh, well, we've been trying that. Uh, what is that helping? And then Donald is like, what if we have made like a national hero? Yeah. It's well, what if we give them hope? It's like the whole scene is, oh, have we tried murdering everybody? What if we give them a hero, but not the kind of hero that fucks the girls that I like? Yeah, that was his big thing. He's just like, man, I love being a communist. Unless someone has sex with the girl I like, and then I'm a Nazi. (laughs) And that's incels in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even being uncharitable when I describe his crisis of faith as being like an incel breakdown. Because those are his exact words. It's like, how could communism ever exist when no one is equal in love? He's like, we're... They tell us that we're equal in what we have, but people will always have things that you want, and you'll never have those things. Communism must fail. Some men are born with broader shoulders and bigger dicks. And how is a man to compete with that? How is a man to compete with that? I gotta break out the JBP voice. We can't all be chads. You see, it's the cultural Marxists that want to hog the top 1% of women. Men just, they just need their fathers in their lives. Oh, wait, no, it's the 1% of Chad's taking 90% of the women. That's that's, that's right. the JBP Vasily logic. took 90% of big, the women in the Red Army. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a trash movie. It's, it's I somewhat artistically done. 
There's some good effects. The battles are cool. Um, the script is lazy. The acting's lazy. Uh, they, it's really just like, I would say if no I'm No one tries movies, to do an accent. It's just all British actors doing British voice. I, I can appreciate that nobody tried to do an accent. Yeah, that I probably think, could have been I worse, think I guess. faking Russian accents would have been more offensive, and I'm surprised they didn't have them do shitty Russian accents. That aside... Nah, comrade, why I get no pussy? It, yeah, I mean, like, I, that's what I thought was going to happen. When the movie starts with faux Cyrillic writing, I'm just like, man, there's going to be so many bad Russian <laughs> accents. Uh, and then, you know, halfway through it, you're like, man, I haven't heard a single Russian accent. No. But at the end of the day, this movie, if I'm ranking movies, one of my least favorite movies, one of one a movie I think is probably one of the worst propagandist films that's poorly written is Top Gun. Top Gun? Yeah. Like Top, Top Gun, Gun is poorly written, shoehorned love interest, just propaganda, got people to join the wrong branch of the military. <laughs> it's it's not a it, it's it's a fine movie to watch. It's fun enough. It's not very good. And I think Enemy at the Gates is a worse version of that. Yeah. I mean, it's the same enemy, essentially, the communists, because when we watch Enemy at the Gates, it's clear the enemy is communism. Yeah. It's the same enemy between Top Gun and Enemy at the Gates, but at least Enemy at the Gates has, or at least Top Gun has Val Kilmer. And it's so weird. Like, in his worst role. <laughs> Val Kilmer's worst role that I've ever seen is yeah. in Top Gun. Uh, it's so weird that it came out in like 2001 also, because we're over a decade removed from the fall of the Soviet Union. Why put out this Cold War bullshit right now? If this had been made in the 80s, okay, I guess, it, you know, fuck communism, whatever. But why then? You know, and obviously it was clearly trying to ape Saving Private Ryan style in many of the shots, the aesthetic, the grim muck of it all. But I don't think it's ever a bad time to make an anti-communism propagandist piece. I guess not. I mean, if it was made today, it would make more sense than 2001, though, because we've had... Well, I guess it's sort of been a reaction to people becoming more level-headed towards communism that you had to have even more outrageous anti-communism now. But it well, just... I mean, when that move, when Enemy at the Gates came out, I don't think there were that many people going, hey, maybe socialism isn't that bad. Yeah. We were still firmly in the era of centrist Democrats and Republicans. Mm -hmm. uh, it was all liberalism. So... I don't even know, I don't really know why this movie exists, other than somebody said, we need a movie idea. Hey, did you hear about that Soviet sniper? That guy seemed pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, but we don't really like Soviets, so how can we wash this out so that it's yeah. just a sniper movie that also hates communism? Have you read this book about a Soviet sniper that all Soviet historians hate? It's called Enemy at the Gates, The Battle for Stalingrad by William Craig. Yeah, and maybe that's all it was. It's one guy goes, hey, somebody I know just read this book. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to read it, but here are the high points. And I'm Let's sure make a movie off of it. I'm sure there's plenty of nonfiction books about Stalingrad that you could read that would be much better. But uh, there's one fictionalized Battle of Stalingrad novel that I've heard nothing but great reviews for, and it's called a uh, War of the Rats. I think it came out in 1991, and it's loosely also based off Vasily's duel with the Nazi sniper. It's a different officer, though, because no one actually knows for sure who he had the three-day duel with. Because that did actually happen in the Battle of Stalingrad, was that he had a sniper duel over the course of three days. But it wasn't, for sure, Erwin Koenig, had Ed Harris's character, or his real-life counterpart. Yeah, I think that whole... The main thing for him was, this is the top sniper in Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. And... He, oh, I will say, the, the, to be fair... They did slam Nazis one point. Koenig kills the little kills Sasha. Yes, who was an 
I'll get into that. So you go ahead and say what you're saying. He, you know, they're, they're using him as a pawn. He's like mm-hmm. a, a mole back and forth. Yeah. But because that's the perfect tool for espionage as a 12 year old boy who's a shoe shiner that gets paid in chocolate. Yeah. Nazi chocolate. And oh, I bet that's some good chocolate. He kills. He kills Sasha. And that's the biggest jab they really make on the Nazis is that they're willing to kill a boy. Yeah. So Sasha Filipov was an actual spy for the Soviets and he was 17, not 12, but he was small for his age. So he had the nickname, the schoolboy. But this movie even does him dirty with how Danilov treats and manipulates him because the real life Sasha Filipov knew what he was doing. He was, again, a patriotic Soviet who was trying to infiltrate the Nazis, and he was eventually found out and hanged before uh, his family and the rest of the village publicly hanged. But he, Danilov, uh, tries to cover his own ass in this film by saying, oh, he was acting alone and he defected. Yeah, Danilov's character is just the embodiment of what the West wants you to think communists are. Yeah. Just turncoats, um, inauthentic. Like he's just they really trash him. Mm-hmm. And of course, like his job as a political officer is to be a propagandist, so they lean really heavy into that. But what the hell is any American war film but that exact same thing? You're making heroes. Yeah, I mean, I think especially in you know Vietnam when you're dealing with negative press at home, it became really important to put out pro-U.S. military progress in Vietnam. Uh, puff pieces to support people because anybody have... any military like any military is going to have the fight at home yeah. while you've got the fight in wherever you're actually fighting in this instance they're fighting in their home but the media's job in that point is in part to do propaganda in support of the military so there's nothing inherently wrong with what the the soviets were doing with their propaganda as opposed to what any other country does with their propaganda yeah and it's on its face it says hey this is state media you know this is how it should be viewed. But uh, another part, uh, if you want to talk about how the media portrayed Vietnam, was not only puffing up the American soldier as the hero, but also kind of inventing these straw man myths of how mistreated they are at home with the whole spitting on soldiers, baby killer myth, which there's really no evidence that that ever happened to returning GIs from Vietnam. Well, I mean, that may be true, but Vietnam was wildly unpopular at home. It was, but the myth that you literally get spit on when you return, whenever people, I'd say the average American understood that most people that fought in Vietnam were drafted. Yeah, I I don't think it's probably as as bad as as that, but... I'm just saying that's another uh, aspect of the media's propaganda. It's not only does it have to do the pro, it has to prop up a shitty straw man version of the con. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes that's what it does. Hmm. You know, because you've got to, you know, if we're trying to say that, look, this war is only unpopular because there's so many people who are just anti-war trying to make it unpopular. People actually love the war. You know, that's, I mean, you can do it that way, too. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, propaganda is a natural piece of how governments and nations operate. And Enemy at the Gates makes a big show about how the Soviets are just so bad for the way they did propaganda. Mm-hmm. While also making a film that is propaganda. Purely propaganda, yeah. That really has no place, like I said, for being made in 2001. Yeah, it's not relevant to anything that was going on. Uh, it's just like, hey, what if we um, we talk some shit about the Soviets since they haven't been around for a decade? Two thumbs down. Two, two big stinky thumbs down. Yeah, I really don't have any more to say about Enemy at the Gates other than it was a piece of shit. 
Um, one of the things I made note of is it's very milk toast. Yeah. You don't really get to use that word a whole lot, but for sure, it's milk toast. It's tepid. It's lukewarm. It's spoiled milk toast. It's not. It's just no effort was put into this movie whatsoever. Well, I'll take the back. The battle scenes are decent as far as action goes, but it's action without a purpose. Yeah, that's that's it. It's just here's a an action movie. There's no like there's no takeaway from the movie. Like you don't when you finish it, you're not like, "Man, I'm really glad I watched this." You go, "Oh, it's over." Well, you see awesome. like Vasily, he's like Dumbledore's army. Yeah. And like the Red Army and the Nazis are actually, you know, the bad guys. Well, um what I would say is that in that analogy, Vasily has big Zelensky energy. What I would say is the Nazis are the Death Eaters, but Umbra, <laughs> or sorry, Umbridge, is the Soviet Union. That's Khrushchev. Okay. No, all of all of the Soviet Union is Umbridge. Okay. They're they're bad. Can we they're not the as bad. To make it even more shit, Libby. Uh, let's see. Give me a second. Stalin was IRL Voldemort. You know, it's really hard to do this analogy. Because Enemy at the Gates did such a poor job being negative about Nazis. Yeah. It's it's like if I say... Um, it's almost like the Nazis are just like a force of nature that, of course, they're there. Why wouldn't they be? Yeah, it's like the Nazis are a given. Yeah. Let's talk about the unnecessary party in the room, the communists. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like last episode when we were talking about how like the zombie horde doesn't have morality. It's mindless predators. And that's kind of how... The Nazis are portrayed, except not even really all that predatory. Yeah, Nazis gonna Nazi. That's just that's yeah. just what it is. Well, what were you doing in Stalingrad in their way? <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't. And we'll get into this with come and see, but there's no reference to Nazi atrocities in Enemy at the Gates, other than the murder of a child, which is done off scene because you don't want to upset anybody. It's like this whole movie was. How do we make a Soviet movie that doesn't offend anybody that women will like? So here's the love scene and doesn't make anybody reflect on the the disaster of imperialism and the the atrocities of World War II. How can we co-opt a veteran story without giving him any sort of agency? Yeah, and and you know, but per this movie, there was no cost to World War II. I mean, it's just it's just bad. It really is. It's bad and it's aimless and it's just I don't know what more I could say about it than I haven't already said, other than like any bit of it that's competently done is actually more of a disservice than the things that were shittily done, because it's in service of making something so shitty and ahistorical. I'd rather watch Pearl Harbor. Yeah, that's also... Was that Michael Bay? No. I think so. Was it? I think that was Michael Bay, or maybe he, he produced it. I don't know. Give me a second. Yeah. Yeah, Pearl Harbor fucking stunk, too. I mean, Pearl Harbor, uh, you know, well, star-studded Har- cast. It was primarily a love story, too, wasn't it? It was Michael Bay. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, it's like a love story. It's it's a love story masquerading around as a movie at World War II. It's also, like, three hours long. It's another one of those two VHS movies. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, Titanic and Pearl Harbor. Those were the classic two VHS tape films. I mean, Pearl Harbor has at least got really good cinematography and the love story is at least compelling. Yeah, Michael Bay knows how to do action. 
Uh, it it's propaganda. It is kind of hard to believe Michael Bay doing a compelling love story though, because he is very much honestly <laughs> fucking Hardy's commercial from like 2006, just ass and titties and ketchup. Uh, my mind is blown that that <laughs> that that's a Michael Bay movie. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. But still, somehow better than this big old stinky piece of shit. Yeah, the uh, Enemy of the Gates is probably one of the worst movies I've seen in a long time. Yeah, it's just how can you make a story about a soldier while single-handedly insulting everything that he fought for. Yeah, just don't make a movie about that guy. It's like, okay, maybe there's a Nazi sniper that I want to make a movie about, but I don't want to talk bad about the Nazis. Okay, well, then I'm not going to make a movie about a Nazi sniper. You know, it'd be great if there was a Western film that did portray the war on the Eastern Front, but after seeing this, I don't know that I could trust any Western film studio to do it. I mean, the it's, it's just the struggle of the... The desire to talk about the war, but also this phobia of... I mean, we also so, have enough media this, about World War II at this point. The specter of the Red Scare haunting just throughout. It's like we can't even make a decent movie about Stalingrad without talking mm-hmm. about the rush. You could have been ambivalent to communism to make this movie. Yeah, just have a big-ass battle movie. But no, they chose to intentionally target only the communist with... What are we even doing here, comrade? Oh, I'm so sad my shoes have holes. Speaking of holy shoes, you want to go to the next movie? Yeah, we'll get there in a second. I was trying to think if I had anything else to say about it, even though I angrily, like two minutes ago, said, I don't have anything else to say about this piece of shit. At this point, I think we've spent several minutes just shit talking, coming, or enemy at the gates. I just don't want to stuff a cork into it until I'm done unloading, but I feel like I'm done unloading. I think you'll get the opportunity in Come and See to go, yeah. unlike enemy at, the Ga- in enemy at the Gates, which was a real piece of shit, Come and See does this. You see, you made what we here in the business like to call a real piece of shit. We can do a callback to Enemy at the Gates if we need to. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to... I mean, that's kind of the nature of this podcast, is contrasting good stuff and... No- well, I think this is the first episode where we've done a film where I'm just outright, this is a bad movie you shouldn't watch. Well, it's not the first episode where I've done that, but I will Would say- Would you rather watch this again or Bad Boy Bubby again? Bad Boy Bubby. Would you rather watch this again or the Bobby Flay Scooby-Doo? This again. <laughs> oh, God. That must be a really bad episode of Scooby-Doo. I'll Fuck. have to check it out if it's that bad. Fuck Bobby Flay Scooby-Doo. What? <laughs> what? What's interesting about this to me is we're kind of do it. We're we're kind of watching these movies from like a here's a high art, here's a low art movie talking about the same subject matter generally. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be one of those instances where the high art movie is both way better artistically and also just a way better movie. Um, I I know it's uh, not the simpleton point of view. Enemy at the Gates is a very simple movie, yeah. and it's it's so simple that it sucks. If you told me Michael Bay directed this one, I would believe it. <laughs> Honestly, I think Michael Bay would do so much better. <laughs> There'd be an Optimus Prime like, with a ham sick on it. Every you know, every time a rifle went off, a building would just explode. <laughs> and honestly, Enemy at the Gates, if there were more buildings exploding just yeah. from rifle fire, I would love it so much more. Uh. Another thing that I've done like in my reading in Stalingrad is that there really isn't a good Western film portrayal of the Battle of Stalingrad, except for when it comes to video games. That seems to be where it's actually done justice. Is usually in the early to mid aughts, whenever uh, 
the Call of Duty and Medal of Honor games were still World War II centric before modern warfare. I mean, Call of Duty World at War is one of my all-time favorite games. Well, when did that one come out? Which console generation was that? That would have been on the 360. Okay. And did they have a Stalingrad level? I'm fairly certain. Okay. There was a lot of... Um, I remember there's a lot of the use of the SVT-40 and PPSH. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I can't remember if there's specifically a Stalingrad level, but I think there is, because I remember there's a Soviet... There's, uh, there's like a river crossing somewhere. There has to be. One thing I noticed about uh, Ed Harris's sniper rifle is that his scope looks like a fucking soup can. It is so big. It looks so nice. Like, he's got cutting-edge optics on his rifle, and the Soviets have really, really shitty optics. That's something I noticed. It's like they said, here's our best sniper. He's still going to have janky equipment. Yeah. He, we can't afford to give him something decent. Do you think that part might actually be historical, though? I don't know. No. I mean, I'm sure that yeah. at some point, I, I, the Nazis were doing all kinds of crazy inventions to have better weaponry, but yeah. I'm sure at some point the Soviet Union could have bought optics from somebody. Yeah. Plus, they got a couple of decades of industrialization under their belt that the Soviets didn't have. And, I mean, they had killed some Nazis... You're saying that none of the Nazi snipers had any optics? Yeah, Vasily just leaves the Ed Harris's rifle on Danilov's body instead of taking that sweet ass rifle with him. I don't know. I, yeah. I imagine it's like a like a Car 98. I don't yeah. know if it'd be that much better than like a Mosin Nagant, but <laughs> the optic at least looked really good. Yeah. One last thing I'll say about Enemy at the Gates is that this film isn't worth watching. But if you are interested in the subject matter, uh, Vasily Zatsev is a figure that's worth looking into. He's a very fascinating guy. Yeah, I also would not recommend you watch this movie unless you just hate yourself. I would say, a throwback to when I said, if there's nothing else on, I might, you know, you could watch uh, Bad Boy Bubby. (laughs) But again, if there are two options of Bad Boy Bubby or Enemy at the Gates. Sit in silence. Don't don't turn your TV on. No, I don't even sit in silence. Bad Boy Bubby (laughs) all day. Just watch it all day to avoid the chance that you might watch Enemy at the Gates. Well, hell yeah, man. I'm happy to hear you came around on Bad Boy Bubby. I didn't come around on Bad Boy <laughs> it Bubby. It sounds to me like you came around on Bad Boy <laughs> Bubby. The Gates is just one of the worst movies I've ever seen. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about 1985's Come and See.
And we're back, and we're here to talk about 1985's Come and See. Directed by L.M. Kilmov. Screenplay by Kilmov and Alez Adamovich. I told you I was going to fuck up these Slavic names so bad. Uh, it was loosely based on Adamov's writings of nonfiction books about the uh, raids against Belarusian villages on the Eastern Front. Uh, the novel... There's a fictional novel that's loosely based on called Kaiten from 1971 and uh, Adamovich's memoir, I Am From the Fiery Village, from 1977. Uh, the two stars are Alexei Kravachenko, who plays Flora. Okay, I can't even say the fictional character's name right now. Ale- Alexei Kravachenko plays Flora. Olga Miranova plays Glasha. Uh, I don't have a budget listed for this. Uh, we were kind of talking off mic about why that might be, because it is a Soviet state-produced film, so they might not have the budget listed. But in the box office, it made $21 million. Uh, uh, some facts about Ilem Kilmov, the director, is that he actually grew up in Stalingrad, and he had to flee the city when he was nine years old because of the events of the Battle of Stalingrad. Uh, in one of the supplemental videos I watched on this where it was interviewing Kilmov, he talked about having to cross the Volgastad while it was on fire with his mother and infant brother, ironically named German Kilmov. <laughs> Not that he had a German name. His first name is the word German. I guess how some people got the first name French. Uh, they actually retreated to the Ural Mountains, which is where uh, Vasily Zatsev is from originally. So that's just a fun, interesting fact about his life. Uh, well, yeah, let's get into it. Uh, the story of Come and See follows a 15-year-old boy named Flora who is conscripted into the Red Army after finding a rifle buried in the sand. And we see the effects of war on what was essentially still medieval subsistence farmers, people that had not been industrialized yet. Well, and... To uh, to kind of point out, there's this reoccurring theme that starts when they're digging in the sand. They're basically digging in trenches, mm-hmm. and a German recon plane or bomber flies over. A uh, Wolf FW-189 is so, the name of the Nazi reconnaissance plane. So that, that plane flies over multiple times, but this is the first time you see it. Him... Uh, and uh, so Flora and the other boy from uh, the village. Yeah, the v- boy with the raspiest voice known to man who's playing around and affecting a German accent. is like, Yeah, so they both, when the plane flies over, they both like hit the ground trying to hide. Th- that ends up coming up later, but... Mm-hmm. As they're digging for guns and memorabilia and stuff to have from the war, they're accosted by an older man in the village that says, leave that shit in the ground. If they see you walking around with it, then you're going to be forced to fight. And that is what ultimately ends up happening. Well, and that's Flora's dad. Is it? Yep. I don't, oh, I thought that was just like a village elder. No, that's his dad. Okay. Because there's that scene much later on where they talk about his whole family being dead and his father. I think that's his father there that's burnt. That is the same character that's burnt later. I just and didn't realize that it was his father. He says, I told you not to do this. My read on that was that it was his father and he like managed to stay alive 
just long enough <laughs> to blame all it's of this all on your Flora. Fault. Uh, to a degree, that is kind of what happens because Flora, in getting this rifle, that is the only qualification for becoming a partisan, part of the fighting force defending Eastern Europe at that time. And in getting this rifle, it uh, brings the Red Army to his village, which presumably the Nazi reconnaissance planes saw and led to his village being raided. Of course, as you see with this particularly vicious campaign, the village was probably going to be raised either way, but they might have gotten to it sooner because directly of Flora's interactions. And I'm going to go out and say, I don't think, one, I'm not sure if the rifle's what brings the army to the village, other than he's just the right age. Because I think that other boy has a rifle, and they don't take him. And then two, I don't think the the plane, or them being out there, brought their the Germans to their village. No, but... Uh, because I don't... Because there's a scene later on where one of the planes flies over and they just, like, chuck out an empty liquor bottle. Yeah. So, the can, the the statement there is that the German pilot's really just flying around drunk. Mm-hmm. So, it's kind of maybe just a coincidence that the plane flies over. Well, I think what it is is that what happens off screen is that Flora somehow comes in contact with someone that brings them in to recruit him because yeah, he is the, armed. the Red Army. Yeah, yeah. so some... The so Red think, Army's presence is what brought the Nazis to the village. Or he presumably hit, is just the right age, and it's maybe it's coincidental. But yeah, yeah. something happens, and the Red Army shows up. Yeah, He's not exactly conscripted. He's kind of volunteering at first, because he doesn't understand the gravity of the situation. But he doesn't have a choice in the matter either. No. But regardless of that, he's eager to join up. Because mm-hmm. And you can tell, and, and this, is, this movie is really well done. Yeah. Art, from an artistic... Uh, perspective and just the details they put in and we'll get all through this but at this point in the movie flora is so happy and smiley and bubbly and giggly and looks like he's 12 years old yeah i think he was the actor was 13 whenever the casting process began and as the film shot over the course of nine months or so he turned 15 he was at the tail end of 13 start to finish though it took like a year and a half, two years for this movie to be produced. Yeah. Well, there were seven years of pre-production before they even got to that point with okay. uh, some personal tragedy on Alem Kilmov's part. Gotcha. Uh, oh, a funny thing about that is one of the things that delayed production was the Soviet Ministry of the Arts wouldn't let them call the film Kill Hitler. That was the original title title of the film, coming from a Soviet poem that existed post-World of... The line goes something like, Kill Hitler everywhere, kill the hitler in yourself which you know it is kind of something that ties into the film but of course they couldn't work with that title so they chose come and see which is a reference to a line in the book of revelation referring to the four horsemen of the apocalypse come and see behold a pale horse called death i believe is where it comes from yeah i didn't realize that that's where they had gotten the name for the the film but and, and the film I think start- kill hitler was better this the come and see is a good name for the movie because it's it's showing this is what German occupation of Belarusia looked like. Look at it. And this is the film that, of the two we're talking about today, that you would expect to be the more propagandic piece because it is literally made by the Soviet state. But it doesn't really portray the Red Army in a very heroic fashion. It's very grounded. And not so much that these people are fighting out of a sense of duty or patriotism. They're fighting for survival. Well, yeah, and I think the Belarusian occupation lasted like three years. Mm-hmm. And so... I forget, I don't remember what date we're at in the movie, 
Yeah, so but, chronologically, this happens prior to Stalingrad, right? So it, I think it depends on where where we're dated in the movie. Yeah. I don't know exactly if it's stated what year this takes place. It's somewhere in the early 40s, between 41 and 44, mm-hmm. because that's the Belarusian occupation. And Stalingrad was the fall of 90, or 42. Yeah. So we don't know exactly, I don't, I don't know exactly where this movie falls in that timeline. Mm-hmm. But that being said, this is a, a kind of a time capsule of just German occupation where they're trying to root out Jews, but really anybody who just happens to be around. The terms Jew, communist, Marxist, Slavic are all synonymous within the Nazi ideology. And this partially comes from the Frankfurt School because there was a large influence on the Frankfurt School from a Russian nobility that had been overthrown by the Bolsheviks. So they said, oh, it's just a bunch of communists and Jews. Because, you know, there were Jews within the Communist Party because they were the underclass that was being oppressed in uh, medieval, not medieval, but uh, monarchist Russia. You know, Trotsky was a Jew. Yeah, and I think at some point there had been a pretty significant flight from Israel and one Nazi Germany into Russia for the Jews. Mm -hmm. So there's a fairly significant Jewish population there. Um, That being said, the interesting part of Come and See for me is there's, there's a little bit of negative treatment toward the Soviet supply chain. Yeah. In that early on, the old man... They're going off to war, and the old man's like, I've got a hole in my shoe. Yeah. And they're like, all right, well, take uh, take Flora's shoe, and mm-hmm. then make him stay behind. That may re- be an act of mercy. Yeah, that really upsets Flora because he wants, you know, at that point he's still an impressionable child. He wants to be a part of the fight. He wants to be a hero, but he doesn't realize the big mercy that has been done to him. Well, it ends up not being much no. of a mercy, <laughs> but the sentiment is there. Yeah. So we, we see that, like, there can... At least in the Belarusian area, you've you've essentially got freedom fighters. Yeah, these are the people from the community trying to defend themselves from the Nazi invasion. It's that's a resistance all force, them. and so they're doing everything they can to resist. Um, so in th- in that regard, by they voting don't, Democrat, they, they vote blue no matter who. Mm. Um, <laughs> so in that regard, what they've done is they kind of say, "Look, this isn't ideal. This is not." you know, a well-armed group. This is just a group of people who are surviving. And then they don't do anything. Like, there's no real other propaganda puffing up the Soviet Union. Yeah, it's just this force is trying to exterminate you. We're trying to exterminate them. Whose side do you want to fight for? There's a lot of highlighting the German atrocities. Now, sure, there's plenty of Soviet atrocities during the reign of Stalin. But this film doesn't touch on that. I, I think most of well, that it's happens. irrelevant to this film. It, it does. I mean, but I'm yeah. saying it doesn't touch on that. So mm-hmm. in terms of propaganda, sure, there's other stuff they're not mentioning. And they're really hammering on Nazis, focusing on what the Nazis are doing during this time. And so it does a good job in not being overly flattering of the Soviet Union and focusing on this is how bad the Nazis really were. It feels extremely grounded, and it even has visually almost a documentary-type feel to it, with the off-and-on use of handycam and steadicam. And not only does it have a lot of visual language similarities to a documentary, but it also has a lot of shots that are very reminiscent of horror films. A lot of the close-up shots that just stay on for a full 30 seconds where you read every ounce of panic in a person's eyes, where you see every wrinkle in a person's face with the background just staying static behind them. 
Well, and something I noticed that you don't see in a lot of our media is people looking directly into the camera. Yeah. Staring it's, straight down the barrel. It's unnerving. It's very effective. They do a really good job in this film of, of using that tool, but it's unnerving. Yeah. I mean, they you'll have two characters just staring into each other's faces, and there's an unspoken uh, conversation being happened in those faces, especially with the uh, trauma bond relationship between Flora and Gasha. Well... And before we move on to that, I will yeah. say what this movie does really well is personalizes what's happening. When they look directly into the camera, it causes you to have a connection to their characters. And it creates empathy that you don't have in Enemy at the Gates. Yeah. There's no empathy. Like, you're watching it. You don't feel like I, any connection to these characters whatsoever. Come and see. You're drawn up. And the first, like, hour and a half is super slow, just setting yeah. the stage for what happens later But the on. world is so lived in that you feel the environment. You feel, like, the balmy cold. Uh, the setting in the wilderness, because most of this film it does take place in, like, the Belarusian wilderness, is that I think of the term green hell, which is usually to describe South America, you know, in films like Cannibal Holocaust or Green Inferno. But this is like a frigid green hell. It's mucky. It's balmy. It's frigid. It's the most miserable place you could imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, Eastern Europe, which yeah. is a pretty awful place in the best of days. Yeah, but I think that also adds to the visual horror of this film. These long, tall, 100-foot-tall spruce and pine that are waving like pasta at the mortar shells, collapsing. You know. uh, well, they're not mortar shells. They're oh, getting yeah. bombed. Yeah, and uh, to that point in the filming, they tried using just regular film pyrotechnics for those scenes, and uh, Kilmov just wasn't happy with how they looked. They said it looked too unnatural the way it just kind of shuffled around the peat and didn't really have a concussive force. So they used live explosions. Yeah, it's conveyed. When you start seeing the trees toppling, it puts yeah. a sense of fright in you, especially with the shell shock effects. Yeah. After Flora becomes deaf. Yes, very early in the film, Flora is partially deafened. He does recover throughout the film, but for a good third of the movie, whenever he speaks or whenever you're hearing what he hears, there's a very unnerving like flanger effect to everything. Yeah, I mean, you are you spend a, a, a big portion of that. It's all muffled, so you feel the loss. Like, you're trying to figure out what's going on, and information that's communicated to Flora is just, you're not receiving it. And it's, then there's some information that we have that we know Flora doesn't because yeah. he's deafened. Of course, we're watching a foreign language film to us, so we have subtitles. I will say one of the, my least favorite things about it is the movie is mostly dubbed over. I don't know if you noticed that. A significant portion of the audio is dubbed. Are you talking about when there's just like random bits of English? No. If you, when you're watching yeah. it, almost every character's audio or dialogue is dubbed over. And some people do it better than others. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, lack of sync between the audio and the lips. That could have been like a field recording issue or maybe... Sure, I imagine yeah. it has a lot to do with the fact there's filming out in the woods and it just wasn't practical for them to mic everybody up and do that effectively, but it's that's probably my the most distracting thing about the movie for me. Okay. I if had... that's my biggest complaint, though, then it, it's... I don't, have, I'm, I don't have a lot of complaints about this movie. I hadn't noticed it, but now that you mention it, there is some bits that do definitely feel 80-yard. You know. Yeah, absolutely. It, the sometimes the audio one not not just that it doesn't match the lips, but 
the audio quality um, or the audio levels don't really match the environment. Mm-hmm. But the sound design as a whole, I would say, is really good. It's just sometimes with the dialogue, I get what you're saying. No, it's it's yeah. not a major complaint. It's yeah. just something that catches my attention and that was a little bit distracting when I watched it. Mm-hmm. But the sound design as far as like the battle sequences, the score, the explosions, the the way the tracer rounds zip around, which those were live tracer rounds literally zipping over the actual actor's head. That's spooky. Yeah. Unsafe. Very unsafe. Well, I mean, they're tracers. You can see where they're going. <laughs> yeah, get out of the way. That's all so, you gotta do. Uh, I will say the scene where they shoot the cow, I'm glad they didn't really shoot the cow, but there's when the rounds hit the cow, I forget how they do it, but it's almost like they just throw something at the cow to make it look like the cow got hit, and then the cow's laying over, and you'd see like, very small yeah. blood trails come out of the cow where the rounds would have hit it. Well, they used a real dead cow for that scene. I don't know if they killed a cow on screen with the tracer rounds. I don't think they did. They didn't. They didn't actually. Like yeah. you, you can you can tell the cow was not penetrated by any of the rounds. But there's something that they like. It looks like they throw something at the cow to make it look like it got hit twice. And then the cows on the the, the dead cow has like blood yeah. coming out of the similar spots but that scene still shot incredibly well the way it is the way it zooms in on the cow's eye moving around ir- erratically yeah unnerving yeah but we're skipping ahead still uh so once uh flora joins the red army he's told to stay behind because they don't think he'll be as effective and he's forced to give his nice boots to an older veteran while he takes his shitty boots and he's left behind and this is where he meets glasha at the reserve camp glasha is a character that i never quite got a good grasp on yeah you i think the implication is that by the time we meet her in the film she's already been through some traumatic stuff because she mentions that she had been in germany and was rescued by uh commander cossack the guy that's leading that particular branch of the red army that we're interacting with in the film because she very much admires him and so does flora but you know i'm not sure if the implication is that she's related to cossack or if they had a relationship yeah, I don't know. I, I I couldn't get a good read on that. Yeah. Um, she's definitely been through something because her yeah. personality type is just chaotic. Yeah, she's very demented, but she's also, like Flora, a very young child. So she exhibits a lot of immaturity in the way that, you know, you should expect a girl of her age to exhibit. I think she's maybe a year or two older than Flora, or at least she appears to be. Well, I, I, I think that's probably right. What I'm really talking about is the dialogue exchange yeah. before the bombing where she says, she talks about like seeing that everybody's going to die. Yeah. Yeah. She says something about having a supernatural premonition about it. And you know, Flora like flips out and goes to run away. Um, but she's just, she's got a very unnatural energy about her. And if that's what they're going for, the <laughs> actress that played that role yeah. did a really convincing job. I would consider those two to be our leads in the film, and I think they both did outstanding. Uh, I do think that their relationship throughout the film is probably one of the best examples of trauma balding. Ba- balding. <laughs> trauma you know, balding. He does trauma bald. Yeah, dude. I'm trauma balding. <laughs> uh, trauma bonding. The way that they interact with one another, sometimes just wordless, or how their short conversations will transcend like three different emotions. It'll start with them having a very bitter, contentious argument, and then it'll transition into light teasing where they're laughing at each other, then they're sobbing. Because they're both going through a gauntlet of emotions that neither of them's 
prepared for. Yeah, and that's the first real interaction they have together is uh, Flora's upset that his boot's been taken, mm-hmm. so he's going to desert. Yeah. He grabs all of his stuff and starts treading off through the woods, gets in a bog, then starts crying. And you think he's crying, yeah. but then he reacts to someone else sobbing. So he gets up and he goes yeah. and meets Glashka sobbing off in the woods, mm-hmm. and they're sobbing together. And then they realize and how then, silly each other looks sobbing, so they start laughing. And then, like, their sobs become euphoric laughter, which is eerily similar. And it's just, those, those interactions are strange, to say the least. So after their interaction, uh, we see the Nazi stealth plane again, the Wolf. I think that's how you pronounce it. And they're subject to a bombing, the reserve camp, and this is where Flora loses his hearing. It, there's also paratroopers. Yes. So there's a, there's an invasion that starts to take place. I think it's four or five paratroopers, but we see one caught in the branches. Yeah, I mean, presumably they were they were paratroopers all over the place, but we see this little glimpse. Um, but yeah, there's I think there's three, four bombers. Yeah. fly over and just take out the reserve camp. Uh, they set up a temporary shelter, Flora and Glasha. They set up like a little tiny hut made out of the spruce and pine uh, limbs. They sleep there for about a day or so, and then uh, Flora decides, all right, we'll head back to my village. You know, we'll be safe there. We'll find my mom. She'll cook for us. Everything will be great once we get back to my place because this place isn't safe anymore. It's in ruins. Well, and before they head out, though, there's that really strange scene where they're shaking the trees and getting to a shower. On, yeah, and then they're then she starts. Glasha does like a jig. She does the Charleston. The, tra- the Charleston on his, his trunk. Briefcase. Yeah, yeah, and it's just it. It's showing that kids are being kids mm-hmm. in what is a more traumatic experience than any of us will ever go through. Well, because, yeah, no matter the gravity of the situation, a kid is still going to be a kid, even if, you know, moments later they're, like, overcome with extreme anxiety and, you know, grief. Spoiler alert. At that point, they weren't irreparably broken, but they would be later on. Well, yeah, as we said, that's the second sighting of the nazi spy plane and that's almost always a foreshadow that things are about to get a whole lot worse and the other thing to note is the stork yeah the stork shows up here and there which in this instance when they're in the like lean-to that he put together the stork is very healthy and then by the time we get to the they so they set out they get to his village by the time we get to his village the stork is worse for wear for yeah. some reason, it's presumably not a very long time before they get there. I mean, in terms of the actual and I passage think, of time, it just yeah. seems like it's probably a day. And I think the stork is the visual metaphor that we all think of it for as like a symbol for childbirth, because that's something that Flora and uh, Glasha talk about often is like, how could you possibly love in a situation like this? How are you supposed to have children? That's all we want to do is be adults and, you know love and have children but is it even possible in this ugly world and when we see the stork the second time then the stork's worse for wear Mm -hmm. that's when they come into uh, flora's village which has been decimated by the nazis and everyone's dead and they don't realize this at first they they notice you know they don't see anyone you know this place looks empty so they go into flora's home and he's like oh there's some food on the stove that's still warm my mom must have made it it's her you know it's her specialty Despite the fact that the entire house is covered in flies yeah. and all of the dolls are laid out on the floor like they've lined up for execution. Mm-hmm. 
And I was thinking about this scene, like, besides Flora being, you know, mostly deaf at this point, I think they're both suffering some form of, like, senselessness. You know, they've been in the cold rain, so maybe they're not smelling the rot. He's not hearing the flies buzz. You know, they're hungry, so they're not noticing that the food that they're eating is rotten. Well, so I think the... I don't think that the food they're eating is necessarily rotten because it's still warm when he gets it out of the oven. He's, he he yeah. knows it's still warm and he's shooing away the flies. You know, uh, I just Kasha that throws on. up. Yeah. But I think that might be because she realizes that everyone's dead. It's like an unspoken thing, but she definitely realizes something's wrong or maybe she finally catches a smell that yeah. upsets her. It's it's strange. There's not a real explanation there, but I, I think the. It's not the till they leave. Is yeah. that that's fairly recent, and because that old man from his village is found, um, that's a bit still later. Alive. I know, but yeah. he's found still alive, yeah. burnt to a crisp. Mm-hmm. That implies all this happened really close in time. Uh, it's after they leave Flora's house, you know, desperate to find any survivors of this village. Because, well, maybe not the term survivor, because they don't know that there's been a mass death, except for when they're running towards the bog where. Uh, Flora says, you know, if everybody evacuated, I bet I know where they are. They're probably on this island in the bog. That's where they would go if something bad happened. And as they're running, Glossha looks behind and sees the entire, well, not the entire, but most of the village's death stacked up beside Flora's house on the back end of it. Yeah, almost like they had been lined up for execution and that's where they were shot. Which, you know, what's, again, something really well done in this is all of the dolls lined up on the floor like they were going to be executed. So there's a lot of foreshadowing in this that, that's taking mm-hmm. place. And she sees this and she's you know screaming and freaking out, but Flora, still partially deafened and running ahead of her, isn't made aware of it. And she kind of doesn't want him to see, but does know that he needs to know what's happened. So she's in like a funny place between like stopping him and saying, hey, look behind us, and hey, don't look behind us. Well, I think she, I, you know, what I don't really... I didn't get all of that from it. I felt like she was desperately trying to get to him, and he's just full tilt running through this bog in probably the worst way possible. There has to be a way to <laughs> traverse to the get bog. to that little island uh, without getting so, so stuck in the bog. Yeah, every because bo- there's another guy that walks up, and he's not covered in water. There's there's no. clearly another path. Well, like every body of water in this film has like a, like six inches of soil on top of it. Yeah, it's just pond scum. It's all pudding skin. So they're like digging through it. And at some point it gets so thick you could almost walk on it. Yeah. But. And the information isn't given to Flora, but we kind of see as he's traversing this bog, the realization that everyone's probably dead. Yeah, he's, he's sheer panic. And so when he finally gets to the bog. And he doesn't see anyone. He, I think that's when Galasha says they're all dead. They were back in the village, and he has a small bout of madness and like freaks out and tries to choke her, and then pushes her into back in the, the bog. bog. And then one of the the guys from the troop is over there, and uh, Ford grabs his rifle, which to this point he has not fired, but he's ran through every hellish condition you could run a weapon through, yeah, and taken no efforts to clean it out. <laughs> That thing is full of peat he, moss. He found it in the sand yeah. and then uh, trudged it through the thickest, nastiest water you could find. So he goes to pick it up and he goes to, to put around in the chamber and the action is just jammed with moss and dirt and mud. And so, I mean, thankfully, because he might have shot this guy who was yeah. one of his you know, comrades. 
And I love how, like, Glasha just phrases it as soon as they first see this guy that's going to help him. She's like, he's deaf. He's crazy. His family's dead. <laughs> yeah. It, it's like a, don't mind him. He's, he's off the rockers right now, and he can't hear you. Yeah. Don't mind that guy. He's just deaf and kind of crazy right now. He's the now. pinball wizard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're brought back to the surviving camp of uh, Flora's village, and, of course, there it's laid bare, like, yes, your family did not make it, except for uh, this burnt-up man that uh, you said was his father. That's my understanding. Maybe, yeah. maybe I'm off point on that, but I thought that was his dad. It's possible, but I didn't catch that dialogue if it says it. But he lays it bare that, like, none of this would have happened if Flora would have just left that rifle in the ground. Yeah, and then he Flora goes after that encounter and shoves his head in the mud. Ostrich style. Just like, it's like he's going to drown himself in the mud. Yeah. And all the, like, babushkas pull him up out of the mud. Kiss his little head. Kissing him. And then we see the, like, skull... German uniform that's like hanging up. But they make an, an effigy of Hitler. Yeah. yeah, it's like it. He's not an effigy yet. It's just a yeah. skull on sticks with a uniform, and we get to slowly watch them make the Hitler effigy while shouting out different deformities to give him. Yeah. No, don't give him a nose. He lost his nose. He's syphilitic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then they're like, uh, "What? It's like, should he get ears? Does he need ears? Yeah, he needs ears to hear us talking shit." And one and the one guy's like, yeah, I know how to do this. I've done it before. <laughs> uh, that guy, we see him uh, earlier in the film whenever he comes with the guy with glasses to get Flora from his family home. But this guy's probably my favorite character in the whole film besides Flora is the like bearded guy that cannot stop cracking wise. I think actually him instilling that type of gallows humor is crucial to Flora's survival or his ability to compartmentalize the trauma that's happening around him. I would, on the note of the effigy, uh, I think my least favorite thing about it is... They carry it around everywhere? No, they give him a massive dong because it's a potato masher grenade. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I don't think Hitler deserved that. Like, no. he, he definitely did not need BDE. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they then they proceed, they're like gonna... He really fills out that Hugo Boss. <laughs> they're gonna go find some resources for this group, and so they carry the Hitler effigy who knows how far and Flora has somewhat recovered uh, some bit of time has passed while he's in a state of shell shock he gets a new soldier haircut well they cut his hair off to put it on the Hitler doll yeah and they comment on how soft and baby like his hair is but I think at this point you're already seeing the signs of age so he's slightly more wrinkled his lips <laughs> are super chapped so then they Go off to raid a storehouse. Who knows where? Yeah. Like, I don't know if there's a partic particular place in mind, but they get to a crossroad. They set up the Hiller effigy, which has this grenade dong for the purposes of somebody hitting it yeah. and blowing up a vehicle, I assume. It's an IED, but with style. Um, yeah, I, I don't exactly know what the logistics of this is. I don't know if there's like a pin that gets pulled if when they you open hit the it, code or... or like a vehicle hits it and it, the grenade falls off and blows. I don't know, but yeah. they set that up. What we fuck around, man? Come on. Then proceed. They then they go off on their way. Two of them blow up in a minefield that they walk that they all walk through. Mm -hmm. Then we see the recon plane fly over again while they're on the roadway. And that's where we have a fake out where we think another bomb is about to be dropped, but it's just a wine bottle falling out of the plane. 
Yeah. And so they they laugh at the fact that they're not being bombed and they go and find themselves a, a village where they proceed to make a guy, give him his cow, roll mm-hmm. around in the mud. Yeah. And march him off across the field, presumably to see if the Germans are going to shoot at him. Yeah, they, they make him roll him manure because they're like, oh, you're going to stand out too much in those that clean white shirt. I think that's just a joke. To, I like, know. They're just pranking him. That guy likes to fuck around. That's why he's my favorite character is the one tagging along with Flora right now. But I think they make him follow. They, they make that guy follow them through this field in the hopes of maybe drawing fire or that guy won't go out there if he knows he's going to get shot yeah because he says at one point when they're taking the cows like oh there's something i have for you let me go get in it's like oh is it a rifle so you can shoot us no you're staying with us so for eventually they let him go back to his house and it's not long after that that you see because it's getting kind of dusky you see a flare go up to light up the field, and then... This is where the tracer round scene yeah. happens. And then there's just a barrage of machine gun fire. And the the other soldier, the one that is the cut-up, is shot down. Mm-hmm. Flora is still alive with the cow. And so Flora goes to try to, you know, get the cow to go, and then they do the second barrage, and that kills the cow. Flora is now alone. Again, this entire effort's been futile. Uh, when he wake up, wakes up the next day, he tries in vain to move the dead cow, impossibly so. Uh, he doesn't have the tools to field dress it. You see him stab it with his knife and then give up immediately. So he's just sort of wandering around this foggy field when he comes across another farmer collecting hay, and he tries to stick him up. You know, He says, you know, free me whatever supplies you have. Let me take this cart. Let me load a cow into it. Yeah, and he demands an axe so yeah. he can chop up the cow. Yeah, and the farmer's, like, not being hostile towards him because he's like, I see what you're trying to do, but you are a child and you need to survive. Come with me and pretend to be a part of my family, and if the Nazis well, question you... Well, so that happens because because the Nazis start rolling down the road. Yeah. You see their convoy come. Yeah. And so he, You see Flora's bravado snap like and, that well so flora goes to like get his rifle to shoot the nazis mm-hmm. and he's like and this farmer's like oh, what the hell's wrong with you yeah what do you think you're gonna do with that so they hide all of his they hide his rifle his, his, jacket. his jacket and uh maybe something else under yeah. a pile of hay yeah. Oh, and some point during the tracer scene round, the stock of his rifle gets busted. Yeah, presumably it gets hit by a round. Um, I mean, so far he's done jack shit with this rifle. Uh, but anyway, uh, it so all that gets buried under the hay, and then he gets in the wagon. They're rolling to town. Flora's getting told a story of who he, like, somebody's son had died or gone missing. He drowned. He drowned. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, so you're going to be this kid. And these are all your family members. These are your neighbors. And then it's fi- like, there's no way Flora's going to remember any of this. Well, and then five minutes later, he goes, oh, no, never mind. You're my grandson. Yeah. <laughs> and then we. Cut- Let me give you 15 other people to memorize. Forget those others. <laughs> then we we get into the town and they're all in some house, presumably owned by the farmer or the farmer's family. Mm-hmm. And there's like 20 people in this room. And the farmer just starts going around the room naming everybody. Like, Flora's going to be able to now learn a second family that's way more extended. And there's just, that's when the Nazis show up. And uh, this is where the final act of the film starts to ramp up. The What the Nazis do to this village in particular. With us, of course, using Flora as a vector for what's about to happen. Uh, they intone that they're going to take everyone back to Germany and put them in presumably some kind of labor camp. But that's not what they do 
this is to instill like a false sense of security. Like, you know, make yourself useful. If you're, if you have these skills, these qualifications, we'll take you, we'll feed you, you know, you're going to be a prisoner, but you won't be executed. But what they're really doing is getting a count on the village. Yeah. I mean, they're, and they end up just rounding everybody up and forcing them into a farmhouse. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, a barn. barn. Yeah. A barn. And so they force everybody into a barn after, you know, humiliating them first a little bit. And then they give them the ultimatum that any adult that'll abandon their child in this farmhouse is free to leave. Of course, no one takes them up on that except for Flora, who doesn't have children. And I guess they, he kind of rides the line in age between being a child himself and an adult. And then there's that other, there's some... A woman comes through that, with her child and they pull her out, but they put the child back in. Yeah. And then proceed to, uh, you know, shoot up the building... And set it on fire. Yeah, they're throwing bottles of liquor, cans of gasoline, anything to make this thing go up. And it's probably the toughest scene in the film. And this is something that comes directly from uh, Adamovich's memoir, The I Am From The Fiery Village. And uh, there's a lot of supplemental material on the Criterion Channel app, which is where we both watch this. And there's a docu-series made by Adamovich in 1975 where you hear from some of the survivors that went through shit like this. And it is, I don't really know how to articulate it. It ruined my fucking day. But uh, it's probably the hardest scene to watch in the whole film is when everyone is rounded up and put to burn to death in this farmhouse. While not only that, you see just how sadistic this particular, uh, well not this particular, all of the Nazis are. The sadistic joy they get out of this whole thing. They're playing, you know, loud, yodely, lederhosen music. There's a hot Nazi lady inside the car eating a fucking lobster while this all goes down. Yeah, which the is... commanding officer has a cute little pet lemur on his shoulder. Fuck that lemur. Fuck him, I, I too. I think it's a kinkajou. A what? A kinkajou. Well, well, okay, I'm guessing that's similar to a lemur, some kind of marsupial. I think it's like a small little marsupial. Um, it, so it should be noted at this point, Flora's aged another 25 to 30 years between yeah. the la like the last time you notice him in like the, the woods, mm. uh, at the beginning of the film, he looks 12 here. He looks about 38, like he's wrinkled. He's got crow's feet. His skin's chapped. His lips are busted. Like he's aged a lifetime in what is presumably a few days. Um, uh, so after we see the barn get burned down and then the Nazis just start setting everything on fire, there's also a scene where they hold a gun to Flora's head for a picture. Yeah, and Flora thinks he's about to be executed. And it's just for the Nazis to take a fun picture of them holding a gun to a child's head. And so he lays on the ground. He just collapses. He passes out. And yeah. just lays there for a while. Presumably a couple hours pass because when he wakes up and walks, I don't know, maybe a mile or so away, he sees that some of the Nazi vehicles have been overturned. They ran into something. Including the hot Nazi woman. With her tits out. With her tits out. And, and it looks like she had thrown up all over herself, like she'd taken like a cyanide poison. Yeah. Because they'd been captured. Yeah. She also had like an abdominal wound, but by the like greenish yellow bile looking stuff coming out of her mouth. I like to think that she just fucked up and ate the poop sack on the lobster by accident. No, I, so I think there's like there's like that first aid kit because he grabs that gauze to fix his rifle. Yeah, and it looks like there's some vials that have been broken. That might be the case, which yeah. made me think that 
she's an officer of some kind. Mm. So she probably killed herself to avoid being captured because she knows everything they've done to all of these other people and she's not going to let it happen to her. Rotten Nazi bitch. Exactly. Also, they there's this really awful scene when they're leaving the village where they grab that young woman. That was a Glasha. Yeah. Yeah, Glasha. It's it's not clear that it's Glasha at that Mm -hmm. point, but they grab her, pull her back into one of the trucks, Uh the convoy trucks. Yeah, kicking and and screaming. They're like, so they're dragging her up there. There's got to be, you know, 15-ish guys in there Mm -hmm. where you know what's about to happen. And then there's a trail of guys trying to crawl into the truck as it's driving because they don't want to miss out on the gang rank. And it is just totally just like devastating because they're you know that there's almost no chance yeah. this girl's going to survive whatever they're about to do to her and just the glee that all of it's executed in yeah and they're so happy to do it they're literally chomping at the bit mm-hmm. trying to jump into the vehicle so they don't miss out on it it's just awful uh after flora comes across the crash nazi car he presumably it's a neighboring village where the red army catches up with them yeah, I, I'm, it's not exactly clear. I mean, I think this is going on between a, like three or four villages. So the force, the Nazi force that had burned down the village that Flora was just president has been caught by uh, Commander Cossack and his branch of the Red Army that Flora originally enlisted with. And they have the fascists tied up under a bridge and making them answer for what they've done in the village. I don't remember if this is before. I think it's before this scene where we see Glasha walking down the road pantsless with blood running down her legs presume it's after okay because she's got a whistle in her mouth that she's blowing through and i was thinking that came before maybe it is before i you're right maybe it is before but but her lips are busted up she's got a cut on her face she's not wearing pants and her thighs are completely covered in blood from you know the implied gang rape and you know, it's just there's so much devastation, just pure yeah. rape and pillaging. And from... when Flora sees her walking down the road in that state, he kind of mutters to himself their conversation from the beginning of the film about life is for loving, it's for bearing children, and how that's sort of been robbed of her in the ugliest way possible. Well, and of Flora, at this yeah. point, you don't see the stork anymore. The st- like the last time you saw the stork, it was almost dead. And so at this point, they're probably irreparably broken. The chance that they would ever have a normal life after this is just minimal. Uh, after this is where we see where Commander Cossack and uh, the rest of the Red Army have the Nazis and they're answering for their crimes. There's one translator character that I'm assuming is kind of a turncoat. Yeah, I think he's just, my read on it is he's just the guy who knows Russian. and Russian he, and German. Russian and German, yeah. and he's trying to just... Be like, ugh. But it I, seems just, like he's wearing an SS uniform, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, I think so. He's just like, he's like, look, I mean, this is, I'm going to translate for these people, but the things they're saying, that's not what I believe at mm-hmm. all. Yeah, but he had no problem being present. Well, and because there's a, there's an officer who is clearly a very high ranking officer, at least the highest in the group. Are you talking about the older clothes. guy that, you know, kind of begs for his life, or are you talking about the younger guy the, that's like hard about it? The older guy who's yeah. just like, yeah, I mean, I'm just here, and I never meant to hurt anybody. Look, it's my job. I was just doing. I was just following orders. And then you've got the the younger blonde guy, who's the one that told them that if they gave up their kids, they'd live back at the barn. Yeah. And he's just like, yeah, this is what we're doing. These guys are weak as hell. 
because we're here to kill Jews. And if what we're doing is right, none of you Russians are not real people. Yeah. They're not nearly good enough. Real just like Liebenstrom yeah. and, and just German supremacy. We didn't round you up and murder you because you're a threat. We rounded you up and murdered you because you're inconsequential and it's funny to and, us. And I think he says like communism, your nation doesn't have a right to exist. Yeah, your nation doesn't have a right to exist. Communism is a plague that must be put down. It's, you know, he's a diehard supporter. Yeah, And this might be the first time in the film that communism is even mentioned. Yeah, I think it probably is. And so little Flora is just there because he had grabbed a can of gas from one of the upturned vehicles. It was one of the motorcycles with a side cart. Yeah, and he yeah. brings the gas can down under the bridge. And he's just like standing there for a while, mm -hmm. letting all this dialogue take place. And then when they finally get to the execution scene, uh, it's they, they tell the interpreter, well, if you're, if you're... Yeah, if you're not with them, then cover them in gas. I, well, I think it's implied that he'll kill him. Like he has to die with him. Yeah. But it's like, well, why don't you? Why don't you do it? And so then Flora just walks up and like drops the gas can at his feet, and they start scrabbling over the gas can. And, and in this they scene, they start pouring gas all over each other. Yeah. And in this scene, the way Flora stands amongst the rest of the Red Army, he's no longer a child. He's one of them. He is a warrior. He's a soldier. He has seen too much. Yeah, I mean he's he's gone. Like there's yeah. there's not a whole lot of humanity left in him. And he's also the oldest you've seen him. And so they all douse each other with gasoline and then a guy walks up with a torch ready to set him on fire and then a woman from the back just starts unloading her, her submachine gun into the crowd of Nazis. And then everybody else or several other people start shooting yeah. and the guy with the torch just drops it in the water and I think the significance of that is they were making a distinction that even though the Nazis were going to set everybody on fire, mm -hmm. we're not going to set everybody on fire. Yeah. We're not going to make you guys burn to death. You deserve gonna, death, but you don't deserve the indignity that you've put others through. We're not going to we're not going to lower ourselves to your standard and burn you alive. We're just going to yeah. execute you and be done with it. Also, they were underneath a wooden bridge, so maybe don't start a fire right there. That's also a good point. <laughs> um, I didn't think about that, but you're right. That would have been a terrible place to start a fire. And uh, after that, I think we have the first scene where Flora gets to use his rifle. Yeah, he, and he shoots Hitler. Yes, there's a framed picture of Hitler that makes an appearance throughout the film that says uh, Hitler the Liberator in Cyrillic. And um, I think, so... When he starts shooting the picture, we start to have these flashbacks of Hitler's actions being undone. Yes. Uh, real, like, black and white news footage from the era. And as he's unloading his magazine into this glass picture of uh, Hitler, things are being played in reverse. From bombings to prisoners being filed into Auschwitz to World War One footage even. He's rewinding the entirety of Hitler's life by unloading into this portrait of him to undo psychologically what has been done to the Russian people, to the world at large. Well, and two things on that. One, I didn't count it. I swear he fired way more than 10 rounds. Yeah. And the magazine on that SVT-40 is going to hold... 10 rounds Two, the significance of that scene is, for me is that it's useless like he's shooting yeah. a picture of hitler and he's seeing what he wants and the the fact of the matter is no amount of action can undo 
what's happened. Yeah, if you do that to the real Hitler, it's not going to undo what's happened. And so, you know, I think that's a pretty good message sitting there of like shooting a picture of Hitler is no more effective at killing Hitler than it is at unwinding time so that none of this happened. Yeah, I think the purpose of the footage in reverse to show the atrocities being undone is just what Flora's deepest desire is to just do anything to make this go back. But once the magazine's empty, he realizes he can't. And uh, there's a nice little juxtaposition between him and a younger boy that's joined up with the Red Guard. He's the new young recruit, while Flora is now a grizzled veteran. Yeah, that... That is true. It almost looks like that boy is the same boy from his village. But you don't really ever get a good close-up of him, so it's hard to know. But it's no. like the same stature. Yeah. Could just be another little blonde boy. Are there a lot of little blonde boys running around here? Yeah. Um. So that kind of... Flora then kind of presumably catches up with the rest of the group. Mm-hmm. And they march off into the distance. Yeah. And the final shot in the Belarusian wilderness is something that stuck with me uh i've spoken earlier about the effect of the wilderness on this film's visual language but uh the use of the steady cam through this claustrophobic wooded area is reminiscent to me of evil dead but it's totally yeah. completely different you know it's not sped up and zoomed through it has this ethereal vibe to it like you're a specter of the woods you're what's left of this chaos or, this mass death or the red army that's in belarusian woods are they're the specter of the woods yeah and they're gonna hunt down any nazi that's in the woods and they're gonna kill them i think that's part of what that is is you've got a the people there are belarusia mm-hmm you know, the Nazis can be there and they can invade, but the people who live there are going to fight and they're the spirit of Belarusia. Yeah. And this isn't the first time someone's tried to force us from our home. Yeah, like the Russians. Okay, okay. <laughs> Not the Soviets, though. Um, yeah, they just annexed them. Yeah. Aggressively. <laughs> um, but that's neither here nor there. No. Um, I don't think, you know, the. I, I think this movie does a really good job in not kind of romanticizing the Soviet Union. No, it, it doesn't try to propagandize the Soviet Union. It's really just a film to point out how devastating and brutal the Nazis were and not just the higher ups, but every single person. So like when you look at the Nuremberg trials where that famous defense of, you know, we're all just cogs in the machine. We're just doing what we're told. That comes up under the bridge, too. And yeah. it has just as much credibility there as it did at the trials in Nuremberg. It doesn't carry weight. You know, these people abandoned their humanity and just brutalized yeah. every person that they could justify brutalizing. Yeah, the Belarusian soldiers aren't shown in a virtuous light that you would normally see in an American war film. The way, like I said... Uh, I used Saving Private Ryan to contrast the last film. Contrasts like the Normandy scene at the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, where the soldiers are, you know, panicked and scared, but there's a quiet dignity, a sense of honor and duty that's portrayed on their faces. The Belarusian soldiers don't get that at all. These are people fighting for survival. There's no concept of duty or honor. It's just this is our home. Well, and I would contrast that too with Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. Where it's like a game of killing Nazis. Mm -hmm. Where they're, you know, uh, what? Uh, That's the Mountain Doofication of the war film. Ooh, wah! Where he's like, you know, we're out here scalping Nazis. It, like, that, 
that brutality exists. It's romanticized brutality of, mm-hmm. yeah, these are Americans. These are heroes out here killing Nazis yeah. and saving the world. That is completely absent in Come and See. Yeah. There's no, like, and to it's be fair, not portrayed as being heroic. Yeah. It's portrayed as being a necessity to survive. Yeah. And to be fair, like, Tarantino wasn't making it an accurate war. No, 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 no. This he was trying not, to make something, you know, fun and tongue-in-cheek. This is not a, a jab at Inglorious Bastards. No, no. I think it's an awesome movie. Yeah. Uh, but it the characterization of the Herosism. troops in Inglorious Bastards yeah. is not too far afield from the, like, romanticized Western heroes that we get in a lot of American World yeah. War II films. And I think... Uh, that is a big contrast between this and Enemy at the Gates, between Western and Eastern philosophy, is that with an Eastern narrative, there are no heroes. It's just ordinary people. You don't need this symbolic person to rise above. You need a culture to band together and resist. You need, you know, like how I said, communism doesn't isn't really mentioned at all in this film because it's not important to this film. It's about survival. It's about existing. Well, I wouldn't say it's not important to the film because it is the the banner in which they all are joined together. Yeah. Um, but when you look at Enemy at the Gates, you're talking about Vasily being this main character who who achieves his goal despite the fact that communism is there trying to keep him from being as good as he can be. Yeah. In Come and See, we're talking about, there's, you know, Flora is kind of like the main character, but he's not the main force. No. He he... is a witness to what is taking place around him, and he's the vehicle by which we're guided through the experience. Yes. But the main character is the resilience of the Belarusian people resisting the Nazi invasion. There's no, there's no singular hero, like, like Matt says, there's no singular hero there's no there's there's no body to say this is the reason that the war was won. Yeah. It's the protagonist as a witness, not a narrative force. Yeah, he, he almost has no Flora's involvement is almost like all of this is happening to him, you know, and mm-hmm. which is usually not something I like to see in a movie. But we're I, talking about a child. I hate yeah. films where everything happens to a person. Oh god, the fucking and, Invisible Man movie. <laughs> yeah, the or, newest one. I don't. I don't think I've seen it. Oh man! <laughs> um, but I was thinking more about the unhinged movie with Russell. Oh Crowe. yeah, where uh, everything's kind of that lady's fault. <laughs> yeah, everything is like she's causing all this stuff to happen because she's taking zero steps to protect herself. Uh, but in this, in this, it's just he's a boy, and everything is happening to him. And mm. there's no, you know, at the end of the movie, he's not a hero. No. Dinamoy, he's just one of the resistance fighters. He kind of disappears into the ranks with the yeah. final shot of the film. You see him move in with the formation, but after a few steps, you can't tell which one of them's floor anymore. It's, and you also kind of lose track of him in the barn scene when he's among the yeah. people being burned alive. You lose track of him multiple times. And you contrast that with Enemy at the Gates, where it completely undermines the actions of all of the other individuals fighting mm-hmm. the Nazis and we just focus on one person everybody else is expendable everybody else dies this is all about Vasily yeah. and the story does not make heroes out of anybody else in fact <laughs> enemy at the gates is a good job of like vilifying every other yeah 
Red Army soldier. Yeah, I'll give one positive to Enemy at the Gates. Ron Perlman's death scene is pretty funny. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> He's like running and jumping in midair, and he gets tagged on the side of the head, and it makes well, his whole body turn. Because there's this whole debate that they have, like, the first person to go is going to survive. Mm-hmm. It's the second person that dies. And Ron Perlman is just like, I'm an expert in tracking uh, what this guy's going to do because I'm, I'm so skilled in it. I've mm-hmm. learned under him. I know his thoughts. And then Ron Perlman just leaps. And as soon as he becomes visible, his head comes clean off. Ding! <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah. So turns out he was wrong at every step of the way. Yeah. And well, I think with that death, they were like underestimating the German sniper. Like, surely he wouldn't be were. able to hit the first moving target. Well, they they assume that you wouldn't nobody would be looking. Yeah. Until the first person moves, then you see movement, and then that's going to draw the attention to the next person. Mm-hmm. But Ron, at that scene, Ron Perlman had like lifted the helmet up to try to draw fire and pull it back down. But he's using the tricks he learned from the sniper yeah. to try to trick the sniper who literally wrote the book that Ron Perlman's playing out of. So the sniper goes, oh, yeah, I mean, I would have put a helmet there. The next step is they're going to jump over here. So he's already aiming at that spot. So the second he sees movement, he just domes Ron Perlman. And it's just like, oh, shit. I didn't (laughs) think Ron Perlman would die so fast. You spin me right round, baby. You know, because the usual trope is you've got a guy like Ron Perlman in a movie. He's not going to die immediately. Yeah. But no, he dies basically immediately. I will say out of all the, like, shitty celebrity blue check Twitter people shit libs, Ron Perlman is my favorite because he can't really gauge on when he's gone too far. God, he's the Do you remember? shittiest and libbiest of them all, though. Yeah, but, like, he goes way too hard and everyone's <laughs> like, whoa, whoa, Ron, what the fuck? Like, he had that one tweet, like, wouldn't it be funny if Baron Trump was at one of those detention centers on the border and he got raped? It's like, <laughs> whoa, whoa. <laughs> I mean... You can't hold the Hellboy back. It's yeah. just disappointing that he has so many middle-of-the-road yeah. ideas. Badass libs. <laughs> like, he's just, he's so cool. Yeah. It's like but, he had a black friend in the 70s, and he, like, learned how to talk like him, and that's just it. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I don't really follow up with any of it, but, I mean, I love Ron Perlman. Yeah. But I can't follow him on Twitter. No. <laughs> well, do we have any more thoughts on Come and See? Um, I think it's, it's a slow burn. It's a time commitment. Mm-hmm. When I was first watching it, it's I was, just under two and a half hours. Yeah. And, and it's so the first hour and a half are, is very slow mm-hmm. and I'm watching it going, man, I really want to just do anything else, <laughs> but I've got to do this podcast. So I have to finish it. I was engaged with it from beginning to end, but I'd already seen it a few times. So, so I knew what was coming, and I was like kind of eating up every scene, trying to get as much as I could out of it. Well, and I was waiting for something to happen. Yeah. And I, it's worth the wait. Mm-hmm. Like, it's worth getting through all of it. And that's not to say that the first hour and a half is bad. No. It's really good. It's just kind of boring. It it's, sets the it's table. Setting, it's setting the stage for the last hour. Hmm. but not not really knowing the pace going into it, it's like, okay, I get it. This is a really drab movie, but what's happening? I'm very confused. I spent the first 15 minutes confused about what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, you figure it out, but all in all, it's a really good movie. It's really well done. The art does not get in the way of the message. No, and it's beautifully shot. 
you know, that's my big critique is when something becomes too artistic that what the, the, the goal is lost in the art. Mm. And I think they do a great job of doing it artfully, conveying the message and it not just being a blatant propaganda film no. like Enemy at the Gate. They are in totally different leagues. Um, Come and See is definitely a recommend. Yeah. Do you understand why I wanted to pair those two? I mean, I the y- yes. The problem is they almost exist in totally different universes. Exactly. Of like, Enemy at the Gate is such a bad movie mm-hmm. that it doesn't the, really deserve to be watched. It's the only film that I could think of that represented the uh, the Soviet conflict in World War II, and it's awful. And completely Americanized. Yeah. Even or westernized. Though it, yeah. Even though, yeah, even though it's not even an American studio, but it's very Hollywood. There's even like this tacky little horn line that's supposed to be sinister that they play every time the Nazis are on screen, but it kind of comes across as like Austin Powersy, <laughs> because it's like kind of trying to do like a Bond villain thing, but this wasn't like the gritty James Bond of today. This was like 90s Pierce Brosnan Bond, so it's like... I just, I hated the movie. I hated, I, there are, really, there were no redeeming qualities to Enemy of the Game. There, but I don't really have, there's some technical complaints about Come and See. The audio. That's probably just technology issues at the time, uh, you know, just limitations that we wouldn't have today because technology's advanced so far. Yeah. And but that's kind of one that aside, it's, yeah. it's just like a time capsule of... Mm. This is this is a very intense portrayal of Nazi brutality that you would really only see in a documentary. Yeah. Yeah, like as uh, I was describing it earlier, it's like half documentary, half horror film. Yeah. No, it's it's terrifying. It's way better than Midsommar. <laughs> it's always got to go back to fucking Midsommar. Guys, it's one of the you. worst horror you movies ever made. Brought up Tusk made. earlier, now you're Mid- bringing up Midsommar. Midsommar is one of the worst you're horror movies. You're trying to make me break No Cap November and I'm not falling for it. I'm not taking the bait. Midsommar is a trash movie that's way too artistic. You don't have to hug the mic. I have headphones on. You're talking directly into my ear. I'm doing it intentionally <laughs> because I feel like it sends a good message. Uh, copy. Oh, man. Did you see how badly the level <laughs> spiked when I did that? Yes. Look at all of mine. Oh, <laughs> Edit this, bitch. You know what? Because of all this, I'm just going to edit out all the parts where you disagree with me. <laughs> that or I'm going to pitch your voice up so you sound all like, me, me. Don't give me Ben Shapiro voice. Uh, I just thought it had too much art. Uh. Uh, so would you unequivocally recommend Come and See to just anybody? Or is it a recommend with a few caveats? Or uh, I mean, if you're... I think generally it's a good movie to watch just for reminding us how real war was. Or war is. Yeah. And that World War II is a fairly unique war in the scope of the brutality because that's not just going on on the western or on the the western front of Russia. Yeah, that's going on in France and Poland, Africa, yeah. and Poland, and the Nazi plague is just spreading, brutalizing every single person they came in contact mm-hmm. with, and a lot of the people weren't even the targeted demographic. They were just people in the way. Yeah. You know, so the sheer terror of that is beyond the scope of like 
what yeah. I can fathom. They don't even view the Russians as enemy combatants. They view them as livestock that's just in the way. So I think it's a good film for encapsulating that. Mm. And when we go around calling people fascists and Nazis, this kind of puts a temper on that because mm. you can be a pretty bad person and not hit the level of burning women and children alive and raping and pillaging every person you see. Unless you tell me I can't skateboard at the mall, you fucking fascist pig. Yeah, ex- I mean, I I would, I to be fair, I would put people who tell me I can't skateboard at the mall in the same camp as people <laughs> who burn people alive at Barnes. I'm one of those no effects type anti-fascist, skate punk fascist, anti-fascist. Um, but no, it's, it's a really good movie. If somebody's interested in history it's a really good movie if somebody's just interested in watching you know something that portrays the darkest depravity of people it's also a really good movie Mm -hmm. Uh, it's probably not what i would watch for fun yeah like it's not it's not what i would call entertaining yeah that's another aspect of it is that like art isn't always meant to entertain sometimes it's meant to be confronting and uncomfortable and to that end I kind of joked about this on the Bad Boy Bubby episode, but this time I'm being sincere. Is like I think this would be something good to show to a high school history class. Yeah, the brutality of it is extreme, and I would. I mean, I watched Saving Private Ryan in my high school history class, and that's way more gory than this film. Yeah, but it's not as extreme. No, there might be less gore in this movie, but there's way more brutality and depravity. Yeah, um, I would say that you know, on the note of entertainment value. We talked about the Dahmer series on Netflix and how entertaining that was. Yeah. This is not like that. No. Like, in the Dahmer series, you're like, oh, this is a bad guy. This is depravity. But this is a fun show. I like watching it. I'm hooked. Mm-hmm. With Come and See, you're not really, like, hooked. It's just awful. Well, and I didn't... I, I mean... You're like Flora. You're just there to witness. You're along for the ride. Yeah. You're like, you're wondering what's going to happen next. But it's not like a, I'm I'm enjoying this. This is like this doesn't like make dopamine trigger. No, this is upsetting. Yeah, it's I did I intentionally didn't watch any of the bonus material. Yeah, there's uh, about an additional two hours on the Criterion app. It's like it's so dark and it's just it's good. I mean, it's probably it's good for the same reason that a person should go to the Holocaust Museum mm-hmm. is just to experience the death of human depravity and know that. Yeah that's what we're capable of if left unchecked. Yeah. And I think another thing that this film kind of highlights is that the Holocaust is more than the camps. It's more than the persecution of Jews. It's the entire mass death in not just, you know, Central Europe, but like you were saying, in North Africa, in the Pacific, in the Pacific South East, you know, it's mass death from as the result of uh, fascism. And when we continue on past World War Two. That's a lot of the same atrocities that Stalin's Soviet Union was committing in the gulags. I mean, so that that human depravity is not limited to World War Two. No. You know, we're and and these were all just regular people. The Nazis were just there. I mean, sure, there's a lot of things leading up to World War Two, the you know, the collapse of the Weimar Republic and all the post World War One sanctions on Germany. All of that exists to create an environment where this can happen. But these are all normal people who get caught up in a fervor, they go to the extremes of humanity, and they're just running full tilt with it. And these beliefs are not unique to Hitler. No, 
No, I mean, he's he's not the first person to do this or think of this. He's inspired by other writers that he had read mm. prior to writing Mein Kampf. There's a ton of, you know, fascist pro- uh, of writings that Mussolini. evolved into Nazi writings. There's all of the eugenics movement. A like, lot of it, which was American. Yeah. Uh, and And there were plenty of Nazis in America. <laughs> Yeah, actually, the biggest Nazi rally to ever be recorded was in Madison Square Garden, home of the New York Knickerbockers. And uh, what, we're talking about like Charles Lindbergh? Yeah. Major Nazi? I'm glad with, your baby went missing, bitch. What with the, uh, um, the what was the, the silver, what was that American Nazi group? I think there was actually just like, they called it the American Nazi Party. There was like a, there, there was a name, yeah. there was a special name for it, and it's blanking on me right now, and I can't remember what it is, but... Yeah. You know, Charles Lindbergh, just major Nazi, super open about it. Mm-hmm. What Walt Disney, major Nazi, super open about it. <laughs> well, hell, fucking F- Sound of Ford. Music. Isn't you know, that him, Disney? He, the Sound of Music? I, I think. The I Von think so, Trapp yeah. family, more Nazi sympathy pieces. You know, Henry Ford, major anti-Semite. Like, hey, five-day work week, though. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, really modernized uh, mm-hmm. mass production. Howard vehicle. Hughes, I think, might have been Nazi sympathetic. I don't know if Howard Hughes was a Nazi sympathizer. That's why I didn't go there. Oh. I don't want to. But mis- you were thinking it. I, I get them confused with uh, Charles Lindbergh, yeah, because they're like major aviators. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the the fact of the matter is, all of these people are prominent. The Silver Legion, yeah, that's what Silver it is. Legion. The all these people are prominent U.S. politicians, yeah. industry leaders. Major Nazis. They didn't have, like, what What did the Jews ever do to Charles Lindbergh? Yeah. It, and it's like with Kanye. In that video where he's like, I'm not going to talk about Man. who's doing this to me. Like, all the doctors that are diagnosed. I'm not going to tell you what race the doctor was. I'm not going to tell you all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Then he pauses and he's like, they don't want me to tell you. It's, it's the a Jews. Jewish doctor. <laughs> it, it's a Jewish doctor. I, love how, I did like, like that bit well, of the interview where he's like, I'm not going to say it. They, okay, I'll say it. <laughs> they won't. They won't. They they don't want me to say it. Yeah, he's a Jewish doctor. Coward Urban's like, on that shit the, too. What the hell is wrong with like? And you know, the weird thing is like it's just so easy for people to be Nazis. Yeah, and like real Nazis, like hate Jews, Nazis. I guess to conclude, I'll bring it back to the line that inspired the original title for this film: "Kill Hitler everywhere, kill Hitler and you." Yeah, I, and I mean, for all intents and purposes. um, this podcast kills fascists. It sure is. This is, machine kills fascists. Is that cheesy? Yeah, absolutely. But we don't like fascists and we don't like Nazis. Hey, and there's no such thing as cringeless art. And that's what this is, is cringy art. Any more final thoughts, bud? I mean, I could go on and on ranting about how bad Intimate the Gates is <laughs> and how good Come and See is or how much I don't like Nazis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we've beaten that horse. Yeah. I will say the goodness of Come and See is significantly higher than the badness of Enemy at the Gates. Agreed. One has a value, and the other, Enemy at the Gates has no value as... it. I'm sorry, it has a value as, as a movie of what not to do with a movie. Mm-hmm. Its sole value is an example of how bad something can be and still get produced and still have a star-studded cast and just be absolute shit. And a literal value of like a 20% profit, which is abysmal for such a big studio film. Jude Law, uh, Rachel Weiss, Ron Perlman. Bob Hoskins, Ed Harris. I mean, star-studded. 
trash film. Trash film. And there really should be a cool movie about Vasily Zaitsev, but I don't know that I could trust anyone to make it now. And again, I'm going to revisit Top Gun. <laughs> Tom Cruise, Val Kilmer. Uh, who's the female lead in uh, Top Gun? I can't remember. I don't know, but, uh, uh, but Anthony Edwards is the goose. Yeah, you got you've got tons of big names. Not a not a very good movie. Not well done. Um, I think Top Gun is best described as like a gay porn that got edited wrong. They yeah. accidentally took the sex out. Yeah, they left in the weird volleyball scene yeah. and the sexual tension between Val Kilmer and Tom Cruise. Yeah, the teeth gnashing. Yeah. I, I don't know if the mics are picking that up. Okay, I see little clips in the line. You did yours. I think yours is louder than mine. I don't like that, yeah. but anyway. I got bigger teeth. You got you got louder teeth. But that, that being said, um, I, I don't have any complaints about Come and See, so I think it's... It's kind of an unequivocal, if you're interested in anything remotely close to that, give it a watch. I agree, man. Well, uh, this has been another episode of The Snob and the Scent Presents. I've been Matt. And I've been Michael. We'll see you next time. Try to see who will be on your